With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. After that march, we took all four children up to Chicago with us. We had some furniture by then. Some bought second-hand and other pieces that had been donated. Although we lived as simply as we could back in Atlanta, our way of life in the South was totally different from life in the ghetto that summer. There was nothing for the children to do except go outside the apartment building and play in the black dirt. There was nothing green anywhere. Even the playground was black dirt. Thousands of lush oak trees have lined the streets of Durham for decades. But back when most of the trees were planted in the 1930s and 40s, not every neighborhood received the same number of saplings. A Duke study released last year looked at the distribution of trees in Durham. It found wealthy white neighborhoods have more trees than low-income areas with largely minority populations. Researchers also found that this disparity correlates to a history of housing discrimination in Durham and other cities. A forum this afternoon at the Durham Arts Council will talk about the state of trees in Durham and the distribution of disparity. Joining me now is Greg Cooper, a graduate student in environmental management and forestry at Duke's Nicholas School of the Environment, also the co-author of that report on Durham's trees. Welcome to the program, Greg. Good to have you here. Thank you, Frank. Also with us is Kofi Boone. He's a professor of landscape architecture at NC State University and also a panelist in the forum. Welcome back, Kofi. Thank you. Greg, tell us more about this report. What did you find in terms of uh, the disparity of the placement of trees and wealth in Durham? So the report started with um, looking at Durham as a whole and seeing, all right, we have this canopy cover and we have a lot of trees. So currently Durham has 52% canopy cover across the city in, the most, in our most recent report. But the thing is, those trees aren't everywhere. They're not equal across the city. And so what we found was if you look at modern demographics across the city, the canopy cover doesn't necessarily match to that. Um, so you'll have areas that have minority populations or have low income, and they might have a fair amount of trees still. So then what we did was look back, as, as you said, 
And we looked back to the 1930s when the trees were planted. So right now we have about, you know, a few thousand, several thousand uh, willow oaks throughout the state of Durham. And they're aging out and they're dying out. And we have this kind of, um, kind of this, this shadow in throughout the city of what happened in 1930s, in the 1930s. And what that shadow is, is of what the demographics were back then. And so what we have are these, these maps from the 1930s made by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which is a federal program created after the Great Depression um, in order to slow the rate of foreclosures across cities all across the United States. And what they did was they hired local real estate agents. They hired um, uh, lenders to see what the ratings would be for neighborhoods to give out loans. And so they rated neighborhoods by from A to D, A being the highest rating. So those were the affluent, um, generally white neighborhoods, and D being the lowest rating. And if you look at this throughout Durham, we have a, a selection of A and D neighborhoods, A, B, C, and D, A being the highest and B being the lowest incomes. And if you map our current tree canopy covers, which were planted around the same time as those maps are generated, we find that those affluent neighborhoods have a lot more trees than those um, poor neighborhoods on a threefold basis. And that's more than just a rating system because then also what went into effect was a federal loan guarantee program that would guarantee mortgages. And the idea was to help jumpstart the economy. Let's get the building industry going. Let's get some houses built and also build wealth among working class and middle class people. So this was really the beginning of developing a, a middle class but it systematically excluded people of color because of this rating system, which would then forego a, a loan guarantee and therefore mortgages. Absolutely. So you've got this going on, tree cover. But Kofi, what? so, so the, the question is, so what? Okay, trees correlate with this kind of historic discrimination. Does that matter now? And what's the impact of trees on, a, on an urban landscape and the ur- urban environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there are two layers to it. One of it is trees are good um, in terms of... Uh, bang for the buck and return on investment is one of the most important things, uh, most valuable things you can do in any city. Uh, they deal with on a rainy day like today, helping absorb stormwater. Uh, they provide shade and reduce energy costs on adjacent buildings by casting shade on them. They make streets more inviting to encourage outdoor activity. Uh, there's a lot of uh, perceptual data about when people see street trees in those kinds of environments, well-designed public spaces, particularly streets. Uh, they feel safer and they feel uh, their st- social networks and their community connections are strong. So there's a lot of benefits to trees themselves. But, you know, what we try and talk about in the legacy of design, and particularly landscape architecture, is that there are mainstream environmental values that have been somewhat exclusive uh, for a long period of time, which is to say that certain environmental benefits like a tree, green space, other things are universally accepted as being valuable no matter which community you deal with. And in a situation not unlike what was just mapped out about the differences in investment over time in, in, in cities and in communities, different communities have different values. And so uh, the idea that uh, their environmental values may not be greening, beautification, the things we think are mainstream, they may be more basic ones like, you know, uh, access to affordable housing, transportation, other things that build community networks. And so the perception of uh, the interest in the resources for something that might be as benign as a tree might be perceived as a threat, especially in current environment in our city where there's rapid reinvestment and some gentrification and displacement in neighborhoods uh, surrounding the city. When people see reinvestment in the public realm, it sends a cue to some folks that, uh uh-oh, you know, this is going to impact my property values. 
you know, mm. the time is, the clock is ticking now where I have to think about relocating. And the reason this is an important question now, of course, is some of those trees are beginning to die. We've got to replace them. And then there becomes this, this equity uh, question. Well, are we just going to put them back in the rich neighborhoods or should we look in those neighborhoods we've neglected? But as you suggested, that can be an ominous sign these days. If I see trees coming in, what's that going to mean for these other factors in my life? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're quick to define define the problems and then think we've solved them and then come with the solutions. So, you know, there are other examples. So, you know, one that I point to uh, for a conversation's sake is the Casey Trees Group out of Washington, D.C., which felt that the same situation was happening, not just in particular parts of Washington, D.C., in the federal area, but the entire city. And one thing they did to kind of break down some of those perceptions and stereotypes is engage local communities as citizen scientists, young people, schools, educators, community groups to help define the issues. So they went out and they did a tree inventory. They're one of the really early participatory geospatial studies of mapping all the trees in D.C., their health, their performance, their species, public access, open access to all. And that buy-in initially in terms of we all collectively define the problem and laid out the solution, and it's for the entire city, not just for different neighborhoods, I think broke some of that negative perception. Uh, they were able to make the connection between something as simple as a street tree to some other issues. But Greg, taking us back to the time when these were planted, that was certainly not the understanding at the time. I mean, th- those trees were planted at a cost. Uh, this, it was the city planting them, developers? Who was bearing that cost at the time? Do we know? So from what we can tell from looking back is we have the city tree board at the time um, made the big push to plant willow oaks throughout the city of Durham. So there was a city board that had a big push to plant these trees. And a lot of it was um, neighborhood involvement. Um, so you had advocates in specific neighborhoods that requested trees. Um, and largely, um, you see a lot of trees in those neighborhoods and, and not those, so much other trees. Obviously other neighborhoods. the neighborhoods with voice and with power. In, in So this gets back to what you're saying, Kofi, that, that part of this problem is political uh, you know, from, from the start. So empower. So rather than just start with the trees, let's go back to empowering these neighborhoods and, and neighbors. They can make their own choices about how their neighborhood should look. Yeah, and I think you know the tendency now is to uh, sort of silo and partition you know broader issues, and there's a little bit of a aversion to the risk of jumping into sort of this ball of you know cats uh, of, uh, of complicated issues. But I think that people can make the connections. So the idea that, you know, I'm interested in safe places for my children to walk. I have elderly parents or relatives that, you know, would benefit from a little bit of cooling in the summer. You know, I'm an advocate of seeing habitat in my own neighborhood and I like to see wildlife. Well, if that's the case, you know, or I have a school where we have a STEM program and, you know, the kids need to learn about things like photosynthesis or other things, mm-hmm. you know, this is where that marriage can happen. It's like, oh, by the way, you know, by dealing with street trees, we can make streets more walkable, you know, uh, uh, homes uh, 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 more comfortable and educational programs more successful. So you can do a lot of things with this conversation about about tree canopy, about canopy in urban environments. Uh, activate neighborhoods, empower people who have been, had less voice. But but the the ultimate question or an ultimate question about whether this gentrifies your neighborhood and, and ends up making your neighborhood more expensive than you can afford, it seems like that might be a thornier issue to solve. Yeah, it's a tougher one. And I think that we have a long way to go to uh, talk about the level of transparency necessary so that people can separate public investment from private gain. And uh, there are some broader citywide and regional things that need to be talked about in terms of what we really mean when we talk about equity. She's a biracial girl. She's biracial. She's a biracial girl.
Williams is pregnant, which is super exciting. Uh, and her boo, her fiance, is actually Alexis Ohanian, fellow Armenian, fellow mm -hmm. badass, and also co-founder of Reddit. There they are, they're super cute. So they're having a baby together, super exciting news. Um, but that's not the story. The story is how people are reacting to her pregnancy. Case in point, uh, a Romanian former tennis player that apparently has a very bad reputation. His name is Ili Natasi, for those of you who aren't familiar with him. Um, he said some nasty things about uh, the baby during a press conference. He allegedly said, let's see what color it has, chocolate with milk. Okay, so look. Racists love stuff like that. They, they always think it's so <laughs> clever, chocolate like with chocolate with, but with milk. <laughs> okay, I got it. Yeah, so at first I'm like, okay, that was not a nice statement. But if that's like the first time he said something controversial, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. But apparently he has the nickname Nasty because he says a lot of nasty things. The International Tennis Federation has suspended him while it conducts an investigation into his remarks. This comes only days after he was rejected from the Fed Cup match for calling members of the British team bitches. Ah, I'm going to let that one go. <laughs> Look, it's these days in sports, you get more attention if you're a bad guy and it's the same Tommy Lauren effect. Just say outrageous things and you'll get more and more famous. And I think, that I don't follow tennis very closely, but I think mm -hmm. there's a couple of guys who are making a living doing this and throwing mm -hmm. rackets and like the old days, right? But now they add in racist comments, etc., to get even more. I think it's a bad long-term strategy, mm -hmm. but I, I, it's kind of a little bit of like, look at me, daddy, look at me, right? Trying I to draw attention. I see that a lot with some sports commentators as well. Like there was this whole kerfuffle recently with a basketball player who refused to answer a ridiculous question by one of the sports reporters about his team and how his team sucks and how his team always suffers when he's not playing. Um, and Alan West, Alan West is his name. No, not Alan West. No, no, that's a former uh, Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said Alan West. Stephen A. Smith was like, you got to answer that question. But if the basketball player said, yeah, my team sucks when I'm not around, they don't know how to pick up the slack. He'd get criticized. Of course he would. But if he says, "Hey, don't," which he did say this, "Don't tear our team apart." You know, we're we're a team. We work together. He gets criticized for not answering the question. So it, look, everyone in the sports world tends to be a dick, right? But <laughs> that might be a slight exaggeration. Not everyone, but a lot of people. <laughs> and all I all I think is that it's important to at least leave family members out of it. And so in this case, you're talking about what an unborn baby is going to look like because it will be biracial. Mm -hmm. um, and just don't make any remarks about that. And it's none of your business. Yeah, um, I, I like that you pointed out that Stephen A. Smith was upset about something. Really? That's got to be a first. I don't like Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> I don't believe Stephen A. Smith. He's upset about everything. Yeah. Oh my God, this paper. Look at this paper. This paper's all wrong. This one is all right. But I'm still upset. And this pen, it's, oh, it's the worst pen in the world. I got it. I got it, dude. Bring it down. Okay. Anyways, uh, 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 final thing on the story is that unfortunately racism is worldwide. This guy's from uh, Romania. So sometimes the right wing here in America will say, oh, you think we're the only ones? No, we don't think that, right? And so, and all the different cultures are racist against other cultures. Not all of that, not all the people within those cultures, but unfortunately a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, he probably thought one. I'll say it in Romanian so you won't understand. There's other Romanian speakers, dumbass. Uh, two, I'd like attention. And three, yeah, I mean, that's also, I'm sure, prevalent. Like, in 
in other parts of the world like Romania. Not to throw the Romanians under the bus, I'm just saying it's all over the world. So they probably thought, haha, very clever. Oh, wow, that's so crazy, a black person having a baby with a white person, that's nuts. It is incredibly normal, just calm down. I don't know, we're currently in 2017 and this kind of stuff is still controversial. I'm not referring to his remarks, I'm referring to the notion of a biracial couple having a biracial baby. Let's move on with our lives. There are other things to talk about and be concerned about, like Stephen A. Smith and how he is really, really rude. You can go kick rocks. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lovely, sad Negro spiritual. <laughs> Ivy's brother just. Uh, are you all right? Uh, anyway, Ivy's brother used to sing this when he came in from the tobacco fields. Mm, mama, is Master going to sell us tomorrow? Yes, yes, yes. I'm standing in the Frederick Douglass Plaza at the University of Maryland College Park. There's a bronze statue here of a young, energetic, charismatic Douglass, seven years after he'd escaped slavery in Maryland. And embedded in the pavement are quotations from Douglass. I'm looking at one that says, I didn't know I was a slave until I couldn't do the things I wanted. I'm about to enter the Hornbeck Library at the edge of this plaza to see an exhibit of some of the remarkable discoveries University of Maryland archaeologists have made about how Frederick Douglass and his fellow slaves lived at Y House, the plantation on the eastern shore where Douglass spent part of his childhood. Let's go. Professor Leone, it's good to see you. Thank you. It's good to be working with you again. It's a great pleasure and an honor. Introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm Mark Leone. I direct archaeology in Annapolis, which is responsible for the exhibition of Frederick Douglass and White House. I teach in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Maryland, where we are in Hornbeck Library which is the special collections library for the whole university. We're in the lobby just before the exhibition room. And how long have you been researching Y House on the Eastern Shore? We dug at Y House for nine years. This is our 11th or 12th year actually researching it. And the researching it really means publishing articles and books about Y House as a consequence of all the archaeological work that the Tillman family allowed us to do there and funded. Tillman is a famous name in Maryland history. The Tillmans are connected to the family that owned Y House as a plantation? The Tillmans... Um, own White House, but they are Lloyds. So it's an intermarried family. They are Lloyd descendants, and they are the 11th, 12th, and 13th generation of Lloyds to own the property. They are the founders from the middle of the 17th century. So this is one of the lands and great houses uh, that's still in original hands from the 17th century, not only in Maryland, but in the entire United States. Uh, this is a really distinguished family on a very, very important property and important in large part because this is where Frederick Douglass found that he was a slave. So it was a Lloyd overseer who actually owned Frederick Douglass, but 
to put it in uh, short terms, the Lloyds owned him, and he understood uh, that he was a slave on their property, and then returned late in life uh, to forgive his former owners and to establish for all of us uh, what the relationship was, could be, between former slaves, former owned people, and their owners. Productive one of equality, which is what this exhibition is all about. Educated in hell, the imprisonment of Lorenzo Cat Johnson. He was barely 20 when he was imprisoned by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, sent to prison on a trumped-up murder charge, sentenced to life or slow death row. Lorenzo Cat Johnson wasn't a Pennsylvanian, but a native New Yorker from a place with a ridiculous name of Yonkers. And his introduction to Pennsylvania's prisons was a rude awakening. As he was shipped out to SCI Green near Pittsburgh and entered processing, The first message he heard was something like, cease all inmate movement, cease all inmate movement over the PA system. When I was on death row, I always wondered what this meant. Because being on death row meant you were either in a cell for 22 hours a day and possibly in a steel cage in the yard. Well, that's hardly movement. Johnson, coming into a new jail, quickly learned this meant that prisoners were cleared from the walkways or locked in if they were in a school or in any other activity. This also meant that someone was assaulted or possibly stabbed. He would hear the thump, thump, thump of helicopter blades, of medevacs taking out the wounded. He looked around himself and wondered, where the hell am I at? He was in prison, yes, but in another state with no one around him that he knew enough to call friend. He resolved to use his wits to avoid petty prison squabbles, to transform his street knowledge into book knowledge by earning his GED or high school graduation certificate and by taking college courses in business. His greatest challenge, though, was the law. For when he first read cases, it was like reading another language. An old head gave him a book titled Criminal Law, which was several hundred pages thick. What am I going to do with this, he wondered. Well, he read it, and read it, and read it again until it began to make sense. He discovered the Brady versus Maryland case, which ordered prosecutors to turn over evidence of innocence, and he knew he was on the right track. Now, he's back in court fighting for his freedom. The young man who came to prison, barely literate after nine years of public school, had to go back to school in the hell of prison to learn how to regain his freedom. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Canada. We should move to Canada. Uh, An awful awful bit of news came out of the Toronto District School Board this past week. It's not really a surprise to those of us who have been following what's going on at our school board here in Toronto, our largest one. It was a report from CBC talking about suspension and expulsion rates um, 
uh, over the last five years in the Toronto District School Board. And we have learned, unfortunately, through this study, something that is a trend in Toronto that has continued. And that is that between uh, 2011-2012 year and the 2015-2016 year, um, there were a number of expulsions, but almost half of them, 48% to be exact, happened to black students. Black students only make up a small fraction of the Toronto District School Board. So the fact that almost half of the people being expelled are black is shocking. But this is a trend that's been happening in our city for years. And I've brought in a couple of folks this afternoon to st- talk about it in depth. We'd like to hear from you as well at 416-872-1010. Any parent or any student who's faced this issue of expulsion or su- suspension within their school board in Toronto, we want to hear from you. But we particularly want to hear from black parents and students because you are being disproportionately, we are being disproportionately affected by this issue. I'm very fortunate, though, to have with me in studio Tiffany Ford, who is a Toronto District School Board trustee. Hello. Hello. And on the line, researcher Carl James, who has actually just written a report on this. Carl James is a professor who's published a report for York University towards race equity in education. Hello, Carl. Hello, Desmond. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Tiffany, I'll start with you. Um... The equity director, Jim Speropoulos of the TDSB, said when he saw these new numbers about black kids being suspended and expelled that he wasn't surprised. Um, What was your reaction? Well, quite frankly, I was appalled, to be honest. Uh, You know, uh, this report is uh, it's staggering. Uh, Like you said, it's not surprising to the black community, but uh, in terms of especially uh, young black males uh, not going back to school, 60% of them when they go into care and safe schools. That's, uh, that's quite intense for me. And it's, I know for other trustees as well, we were quite, uh, quite disgusted. Now you have sat on, or maybe you still do sit on the committee where you make these decisions about whether a child is going to be expelled. Have you, you've sat on that committee, right? Absolutely. And I've chaired many of them. What's that like seeing student after student after student and so many of them are black being brought into these tribunals to decide whether or not they can still have an education in the Toronto District School Board? Uh, You know, it's interesting because before being on these hearings, the assumption was that most students were black. And then to see with your own eyes that really 80 percent of them are black young males uh, it's disheartening. Uh, but as the black trustee chairing these hearings, uh, it's quite a duty for me. Uh, and I feel that it's really necessary. Actually, this report came out of uh, one of those hearings that we've had. And myself and two other trustees were talking about stats and how we don't have any stats. And so we, we've we uh, asked one of our committees, the government's, governance committee, to, to look into that for us and uh, to focus on, you know, what the average length of placement in caring and safe schools are, the credit accumulations, the graduation rates of students expelled from one school only or all schools of the board. So it really was out of that hearing. Uh, and uh, the report is, is staggering. Let's bring in Professor Carl James, who has authored uh, a report towards race equity in education, the schooling of black students in the greater Toronto area. 
Carl, um, it might be obvious, but why did you feel the need to put together this latest report? Uh, because we always hear about what's going on with students, and sometimes I always like the idea we uh, about data, and we need data. But one of the interesting things for us is what's happening in, t in other boards. What about the Catholic school board? What about the, the suburban school board? So we wanted to talk to parents because they've been asking about uh, things. And we've been hearing those other parents in these other areas talking about similar issues with their youth. And so we, what we used, we used the Toronto District School Board data to talk with them and to hear them respond to them. And obviously they're saying, yes, I think most of these things are similar in our boards. And we went to Peel, York Region, and, and Durham, and we showed them what's going on. And they're saying, yes, we want to hear from our boards as well about what's going on. So that was one of the interests of ours as well, to document from these parents. And we talked to over 300 parents, teachers, uh, students, and educators from, these, from the entire uh, greater Toronto area. And Carl, how do the parents and teachers and students that you speak to, how do they feel about the fact that this issue of suspensions and expulsions is particularly problematic and high in the black community? Uh, for them, it's something that they think, of, of course, in the other boards, since they don't have any data, they don't have any evidence, there's this possibility of saying, yeah, it's not the same here. But the idea of just observations, uh, we talked to some teachers yesterday, and one teacher was saying in, that uh, in her, her, she's been going to different schools, and when she goes to different schools, she will uh, go, in, and the school might be largely of, of uh, mixed school, but in, the, in one class, you might see a significant number of blacks and black male students, and then she'd say, she'd make the guess that sometimes these are students who are on suspensions or possibly undisciplined, et cetera, et cetera. And she said she's in, invariably always right with these things. And, and so we hear discussions like that from, from educators. We hear discussions like this from parents, parents telling their stories about why uh, when they make representation to the board, they might say uh, it, they, it might be perceived that they've been difficult, perceived but that they're not really understanding the school, the school issues, et cetera, et cetera. I w yeah, I want to bring Tiffany in on that, but I want to ask you, how does, it, um, how does it strike you as a black trustee knowing that, as Carl was saying, the system is looking at black children with suspicion, with fear, with like a prejudgment, just based on the fact that they're there. Well, it's it's not just the system. It's young black males are always uh, criminalized. Um, you know, when it comes to carding, it doesn't matter, right? It's a consistent uh, uh, issue across North America, across this globe, um, and unfortunately. Our young black males are pretty much criminalized within the school system with suspicion. Uh, it doesn't help that we have police officers in schools. Um, and unfortunately, these young students are sometimes robbed from their, their education because of suspicion, because of stereotypes. And 
it's quite unfortunate. And we know that when people can't finish their education, all of the horrible other things that they might be exposed to, all of the lack of opportunity that we we don't want for them, that becomes much more likely when you don't finish school. So this is a huge, huge consequence for our communities. We've been talking about suspensions and expulsions within the Toronto District School Board and the fact that these suspensions and expulsions, particularly over the last five years, have been disproportionately happening to black students at the TDSB. 48%, 48% of the expulsions in the Toronto District School Board happening to black students. Now, Tiffany, before we go to the phones, I think it's important to establish what the TDSB's rules are for expelling, for example. Let's talk about expulsions. What are the rules for expelling a student? Well, it's really based on the Education Act. And uh, for various reasons, students can be suspended up to 20 days uh, for for various reasons in our school policy. But uh, in Education Act, a student must be suspended for 20 days pending expulsion for various reasons, such as possessing a weapon, including a firearm, which includes uh, replica guns, by the way. And I think that's really important for people to know. Uh, using a weapon to create or uh, threaten bodily harm, um, committing sexual assault, trafficking of weapons, trafficking of uh, illegal drugs. There's so many different reasons within the Education Act itself. And then pending that uh, expulsion, it's really based on a hearing. Uh, Again, three trustees at TDSB are part of that panel. Do you believe that the teachers and administrators within the Toronto District School Board are just enforcing the rules in an unbiased way and that it just so happens that by them enforcing rules that apply to everybody that they keep getting black students expelled? Uh, Well, I'm not sure about that, but I know that when they come to an expulsion hearing, uh, they certainly, we look at mitigating factors, Uh, you know, depends, special needs, uh, although in this report, half of these black students or half of these students have special needs. So uh, that mitigating factor is um, it's quite difficult to to say. Um, You're saying a lot of the kids who are being up for expulsion are identified by the TDSB as having special needs? Yeah. Based on this report, <sighs> yes, it says 50 percent. And I want to bring back in Carl James, who's the author of this latest report, um, on suspensions and expulsions, and who is the chair, uh, Jean Augustine Chair in Education and Community and Diaspora at York University. Carl, what do you say to this issue that a lot of the kids who are up for expulsion and who are ultimately expelled are already identified by our school boards as having other challenges that they need support for? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, system is sometimes prepared and ready to be able to deal with some of these, uh, the the students. And I I think we need really to think seriously about what other ways we we are going to be uh, enforcing discipline, rather than thinking that it's only suspension and expulsion are the best way. And research shows that uh, expulsion and suspension becomes particularly stressful, not only for the children, but the whole family. And that has a particular implication for their educational trajectory. And if we don't do something about it now, then we're going to continue to have the same problems over and over again as in years to come. So, Carl, are you suggesting that school boards, uh, because we know that if the suggestion comes up that school boards should be less punitive, 
the response is going to be, well, then the school won't be safe because if we can't punish kids who are making the school unsafe, all the students will be unsafe. Yeah, but we need to ask the question, uh, what is considered safe and who is it, and who is it uh, safe for? And what about the program, the curriculum that probably produced in the kinds of situation that we find ourselves in? So it can't all be the students. Why haven't you learned anything? Remember this last week we told you about the controversial memo at a Pinellas County school. Parents and people in the community want that principal to step down. And now changes are coming. The leaked internal memo showed that the principal wrote white students should be in the same class. Emerald Morrow explains why for some sorry just isn't enough. Parents at Campbell Park Elementary in South St. Pete wanted more than what they got this morning. She still haven't gave us that explanation. An explanation for the principal, Christine Hoffman, saying in an internal memo that white students should be in the same class. She understands the power and the impact of her words. Um, now, because there's a consequence, she doesn't want to take responsibility for it, but she definitely understands uh, what she wrote. The principal met with parents this morning to try and smooth things over, but parents say they don't think she really seems to care. She pretty much didn't answer any questions. She didn't care. She didn't talk. She didn't care. So parents and community members were left disappointed and unsatisfied with her response. She did send a letter home to parents on Friday saying she was not asking that white students be clustered, but wanted to make sure that there's no class with only one white student. If, if that's how she feels in a leadership position, then she's not fit to uh, represent a predominantly African-American school. She's not ready. And, and if her concern is to single out white students, then she needs to probably be in a predominantly white environment. And it's not just this that has parents on edge after a Tampa Bay Times investigation revealed that the district's efforts to abandon integration led to this school and four others becoming among the worst in the state. The sensitivity to racial issues is heightened. But we want to make sure that if in, even in this learning environment that the state considers to be failing, that we have effective teachers and leaders in positions that care about all of the students. Whatever her reason for singling out the white students are, she shouldn't have done that. The principal was not available for comment on this story. In St. Pete, Emerald Morrow, 10 News, WTSP. After school let out today, the school district announced the principal has requested a transfer. The assistant principal is going to take over as acting principal. It's stunning. That, that, that's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, again, I feel that justice was now served. She does and she did need it to resign her position. She did not need to be over any child's education here feeling the way she felt. My initial response is they're only putting a Band-Aid on the problem. She needs to be retrained. She needs to be retaught that race should be an issue in this. This is all now under administrative review. Hoffman will work at the district offices in Largo until the investigation is complete. She has been with the school for five years. This was her first year as principal. I can feel it deep inside This black nigger's pride I have no fear when I say And I said every day Every nigger is a star Every nigger is a star who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star.
Colleen Councilwoman shaken up tonight after she says a man harassed her and the responding police officers did nothing about it. Channel 6 News reporter Imani Payne spoke to the Councilwoman about what she says happened. Feeling because I was upset. I was fearful of my life. That's the aftermath of a scary situation for Councilwoman Shirley Fleming. She says she was legally campaigning outside of the Colleen Community Center when an angry man approached her and said he didn't like any Colleen council members and allegedly almost called Fleming a racial slur. It's important to spring it directly. That means that I would never, never vote for you, 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 you know. And he stopped himself because there was too many people around him. And after that, things only escalated. She says the man returned the next day driving this car and that when he saw her, he pulled up next to her and told her to move because he wanted her spot. So as I moved, he pulls in beside me and rushed his engine and backed his car up and I thought he was gonna back it over me. Frightened, she called the chief of police, Margaret Young, who Fleming says sent over three patrol cars carrying five KPD officers. While Fleming says she's thankful for the quick and large response, she's not happy with the way the officers responded to her claims once on scene. I, I, I did not feel any compassion for him that he was there to assist me the way I was feeling because I was upset. She says she will continue campaigning at the community center, but just won't do so alone. She also says she is open to an apology from the man who frightened her. We did reach out to a spokesperson for the Colleen Police Department earlier today, but have not yet heard back. Reporting in Colleen, Imani Payne, Channel 6 News. Oh, some Rutgers, man. They got tattoos and some hardcore hoes. That's, that's a nappy-headed hose there. I'm going to tell you that now. Man, that's some... Ooh. And now to hair extensions and wigs for black women. They are a big business in Minnesota and nationally. The industry is dominated by Korean-owned wholesalers and retailers, not African-Americans, and that has fueled tensions in other parts of the country. But as Emma Sapong reports now, some Twin Cities black women are finding ways to break into the industry. Hi, how are you? Karen Coffee is welcoming customer Sabrina Watkins into her new store, Bella Beauty and Hair, in Brooklyn Park. Watkins says this is a new experience for her. This is my first time actually ever buying hair. I never really thought about buying it before, I guess, until until I saw that this shop was open. Watkins drove the half hour across town from Woodbury, passing many other similar stores, because Bella has the one thing many don't, an owner who, like her, is black. It's nice to see a black woman doing her thing, having the business, because it's, it's rare. Coffee is part of a national growing trend of African-American women launching hair and beauty supply stores that cater to black women. They want to know who owns it because they see me behind the counter. So they're like, who owns it? And I'm like, I do. They're like, really? So then they get excited. Customers are surprised because by all accounts, Korean and Korean-American owned businesses dominate both the retail and wholesale markets. And that has fueled racial tensions at two levels. Complaints about the experience in Korean-owned stores are common, that they're not welcoming or shopkeepers shadow their customers, suspicious of theft. That issue flared last month in North Carolina when a Korean store owner accused a black shopper of theft and was caught on video kicking, tackling, and putting her in a chokehold. There were no arrests, and the storekeeper apologized, but the incident spawned protests and boycotts. 
They erupted amid long-simmering tensions and complaints that stores don't often hire from the African-American communities where they're located, and wholesalers shut out store owners who are black. It's been one of those sore spots in the community. Temple University journalism professor Lori Tharps co-wrote Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. We spend all this money on our hair, but we're not reaping any of the benefits. Karen Coffey of Bella Beauty says some major Korean distributors have denied her request for products or don't even respond. They're not used to dealing with us. So you kind of got to keep calling and keep calling and keep calling. But it's because they won't call you back or they act like, oh, I have to have my manager call you or he's on vacation or he's out of the country right now and I don't know when he'll be back. Coffee feels outgunned by several larger Korean-owned stores nearby. Wholesalers supply them with popular products they won't sell her, including top-selling brands from a company called Shake and Go. That firm says selecting retailers is based on economics alone, not favoritism. And it turns out, Shake and Go won't sell to some Korean-owned stores either. I don't know anyone who's going to give me Shake and Go hair. Sam Wong is vice president of the National Federation of Beauty Suppliers, a trade group for Korean-owned businesses. He says being Korean doesn't mean Korean-owned wholesalers will automatically supply you with products. But he says it is easier for Koreans to get into the business because there's such a broad network of support from other Koreans. You can get some help help and knowledge in operational things. There's a lot of people you can lean on because there's so many people involved in the industry. It's easier because of that. Author Lori Tharps says Korean owners dominate the industry because they started selling affordable wigs in black neighborhoods during the 60s. There was no, like, takeover of this market. It was a market that was kind of organically grown from wigs to, you know, other hair products. And, and then it grew into what it is today. This is not about black, white, green. No, it's called business. Joyce Iyewe of Columbia Heights has built a nationwide clientele by going around the Korean wholesalers. She buys components directly from Chinese and Indian suppliers. Then she sews them into custom wigs and hair weaves herself. She says the black entrepreneurs need to join forces. You are stronger in numbers when black women learn to work together. That's really what the Koreans have done or the Asian market has done that none of us have been able to do. Bella Beauty owner Karen Coffey hasn't been totally stiffed by Korean-owned wholesalers. One supplied her with a hot seller. But it wasn't a popular style that persuaded Sabrina Watkins to buy a wig for the first time. It was the reassurance of knowing she'd get knowledgeable help. I figured Karen or somebody else would be here to help me figure this out. So that's pretty much what it was. <laughs> Watkins clearly enjoys the attentive customer oh, service. I like that even better. And she leaves with her first wig after paying $35. It's different. It's sassy. Emma Sapong, Minnesota Public Radio it. News. Peace, quiet, and good order will be maintained in our city to the best of our ability. Riots, melees, and disturbances of the peace are against the interest of all our people, and therefore cannot be permitted. The jury found that they were all not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, We've not guilty, not guilty. We've been told that all along Crenshaw Boulevard, there's a series of fires, a lot of looting is going on, a disaster area, obviously. The jury found that they were all not guilty, not guilty, Make it rough.
Tomorrow marks the 25th anniversary of a spasm of civil unrest that left large swaths of the city in ashes and tested the boundaries of social order. This morning, we're going to look back, back at what happened, back at what was behind the anger, the violence, the arson, and the looting. And we're going to look at the present and the state of race relations in our city a generation after it exploded. But in April of 1992, Los Angeles was focused on a courtroom in Simi Valley. On trial, four police officers charged in the brutal beating of motorist Rodney King. Let's begin with a composite, a mashup, snippets of sound from the day the L.A. riots began. The jury in the Rodney King case has delivered its verdict and not one. Find the defendant, Lawrence M. Powell, not guilty. Let him know, let him know what time he is. It's our job. Not guilty. To maintain. Let him know. Not guilty. A calmness. No justice in America, not for the black. They have the authority to kill a minority. Today, the system failed us. Don't go near this area. South Central Los Angeles at Florence and Normandy. He is bleeding unconscious in the street. Ross? Oh, it's tragic. The man is unconscious in the street. He's still, people are still coming up and throwing things at this poor individual. Complete anarchy, complete chaos. I mean, it, it looks like Beirut. Chief Gates ordered the policemen away from the area that is under siege right now. Special edition of Front Page on 1023 KJLH, Compton, Los Angeles. There's something going on right in front of the station to get what's happening. They're, they're trying to get into the appliance, uh, a place right across the street. It's uh, like a tow truck is trying to hook up. Well, or I think what's, what's happening on? is that there, there are bands of people that are going street by street, and now they've worked their way up Crenshaw. Now there's about, oh, it's like a drive through at a fast food restaurant. What I'm saying is that this is what bothers me. It's like people are watching television. And they're listening to the radio, obviously. Right. They hear and they see that nothing is being done. So they're like, well, I'm going to go out and get something. Yeah, we know we shop here. I like these stores. But the bottom line is, this is something that you guys have been ignoring for so long. And today, today is day. Four or five minutes ago, people started breaking through the glass windows, breaking through the glass door. Now you can see people. Look at it. You can see one guy rolling out a whole couch. Los Angeles is on fire. That looks like a structure fire to me. It sure does. It looks like a storefront, uh, actually, Paul. We're going to move in here nice and slow. We've got a couple of I can't believe it. What is this city coming to? About three, a little over three new fires a minute. A block from where that fire was happening, yet another fire. I was here in the Watts riot. This is the ugliest, most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And this is not the way for us to vent our frustration. This is what they expect us to do. I 
just heard shots fired down Olympic. I can't see what's going on out there right now. These are automatic rifles. That's the automatic rifle. We have the uh, all the uh, licensed uh, security guards protect our Korea town. So you don't believe the police are going to protect we you? We are not believing at this moment. Where there are no police and no firefighters, it is likely to be a very, very long night tonight, and things may not be much better tomorrow. Sounds of Los Angeles 25 years ago, the day massive unrest broke out following the verdict in the Rodney King trial. Tom's liquor store at Florence in Normandy was the first of hundreds, maybe thousands of businesses that were looted and sometimes torched over the next six days. And as Take Two's Leo Duran reports, there was some history and a lot of symbolism behind that initial target. It's more than a coincidence that the unrest started with a liquor store. Because a year before the Rodney King verdict, it was another liquor store, only seven minutes away, that set off anger in South L.A. Empire Liquor was a white cement block shop. So it was a memorable, it was kind of bleak looking. This is Brenda Stevenson from UCLA. She's a historian on what happened at the site. It's the corner of 91st Street and Figueroa. It happened on March 16, 1991. The death of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. She was black and her killer was Korean. It was a Saturday morning and Latasha was coming to, uh, to buy some orange juice to take home to her family. A friend dropped her off from a night out and Empire Liquor was five minutes walking from where she lived. Although her grandmother had asked her not to come here because the store had a reputation that is the owners for accusing neighborhood children of stealing. The owners were Korean American, the Du family. And tensions had been building up for years between the blacks who lived in South L.A. and the Korean Americans who, like the Dews, ran businesses there. Korean Americans saying that African Americans shoplifted and were dangerous customers, and African Americans accusing Korean Americans of being racist. But Harlan's didn't have much choice. Liquor stores like this were one of the few places nearby to get food. So she went to the fridge and put some juice in her backpack. It cost $1.79 back then. Soon Ja Du, the family's matriarch, was working the register. With $2 in her hand, Harlan's approached Du. But she doesn't have an opportunity to present the money because as soon as she gets to the counter, Soon Ja Du asks her if she's trying to steal from her. And Du had been on edge. Her son just testified in court against gang members who were harassing and stealing from the store. So Du reaches over the counter to grab at Harlan's backpack. And so a fight ensues. Harlan's pushes her back. But Du gets up and tries to grab at Harlan's bag again, only to be knocked over one more time. When she comes up the second time, she has a gun in her hand, and Latasha turns around to walk out of the store, and she shoots Latasha. Point blank, in the back of the head. And Harlan's body is there, motionless. When police arrive, they find $2 in her hands. And the story makes headlines. 51-year-old Soon Ja Du appeared battered, bruised, and in a daze as she was arraigned for the shooting of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. Months later, in November of that same year, Soon Ja Du was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. But the sentence was light, five years probation. And Harlins' family was devastated. Uh, Justice has not been served. This lady has killed my 15-year-old granddaughter and should get away with five years probation. This is an injustice. They call it a criminal injustice system. That's Larry Aubrey. We met up recently on the streets of South L.A. He's African-American, and in the 90s, he was working to build bridges between the blacks and Koreans of the neighborhood. The girl was, was, was killed and essentially murdered without provocation. 
Meanwhile, the reaction by Koreans to the case was... That shop owner, Mrs. Du, was an individual who made a grave mistake. This is Angela Oh. She drove me through the streets of Koreatown. Oh is a civil rights attorney who talked with Korean Americans at the time to build bridges. People prayed for the well-being of the family of the teenager who had been killed. But they didn't see themselves in the middle of no, this race war, I they guess. They did not. They did not see themselves as being potential targets. Oh says Koreans came to L.A. not knowing the country's racial past. They didn't know about the struggles of African Americans. So in the decades leading up to this moment, Korean Americans were unaware of how they became part of that struggle, too. But blacks did, says Aubrey, and they had a grudge. That's the broader context within which all of this occurs. African Americans saw opportunity pass them by. Many weren't able to gather up the money to start a business, yet here were Korean Americans coming into their own neighborhood. And they didn't hire black people either for the most part. When the Tasha Harlands was killed in 1991 and Soon Ja Du got probation, to blacks, it was another example of injustice. There was no question that Latasha Harlands fed right into the uh, community's uh, negative feelings about law enforcement and how black people are treated. So that anger and frustration simmered before exploding on April 29, 1992. And with Harlan's case at the back of their minds, Angela Oh has a theory of why rioters eventually moved from South L.A. to Koreatown. Well, the name, Koreatown. <laughs> there, there were a lot of things happening that identified Koreans as the problem. Even though the spark that started the riot was the Rodney King case, and it was the LAPD and city government on trial. They didn't, you know, try to set fire to any state, municipal, or federal building. It didn't happen. They went after small businesses owned by immigrant families who had a foreign face. The Korean thing gets mixed up with law enforcement, so they're perceived as enemies on one side. That's Aubrey again. The liquor store where Latasha Harlins died never reopened after her death. It was a husk of a building for years before a Mexican grocery store took it over in the early 2000s. But for Korean Americans who wondered to Angela Oh, What have we done wrong? We didn't do anything wrong. This is the answer. The anger that came from this place, Empire Liquor. And it had just as much to do with the riots as the anger over Rodney King's beating. I'm Leo Duran. Things have happened. It's amazing when I talk to people and they say, man, I've been seeing folks protest and nothing has happened. When in reality, there are 40 new laws in 24 states. Uh, you would not have the number of police departments, body cameras. You now have city councils that are now looking at the police union contracts uh, and rewording them. And so um, what do you say to the folks who are in the movement to keep them encouraged when other folks are saying, Nothing is happening. It's not improving. But also, from your perspective, the what's next. Meanwhile, this week, officers in the 34th Precinct in Upper Manhattan, Inwood and Washington Heights, will start the department's pilot program for body cameras. The program stems from lawsuits over police conduct, but the same groups whose suits led to putting it in place tried last week to stop it, at least in its current iteration, but were unsuccessful. And so we'll start Later this week, there was a court ruling on this on Friday night that we'll catch up with now. I'm joined by two of the people who tried to change the program but were rebuffed by the court. Jin He Lee in Washington this morning, Deputy Director of Litigation of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and was co-lead counsel in Davis et al. versus City of New York and New York City Housing Authority, one of the lawsuits 
groups against NYPD practices. And locally, we have Ju Yun Kong, director of Communities United for Police Reform, who organized a long list of groups opposed to the body camera program in its current form. Welcome, both of you, to WNYC. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yes. And as I understand it, your objection to the body camera pilot program is not about body cameras themselves, but the rules under which they can be used. So um, explain how we got to this point. Jin Hee Lee, what led to this pilot program being set up for a little bit of background? It was the case that you were lead uh, counsel on, right, plus plus another one. So actually, the body-worn camera pilot program was ordered by the court after the Floyd stop and frisk litigation. The case went to trial, and they prevailed. And um, as part of the remedies that was ordered by the court to remedy the unconstitutional behavior by the NYPD officers in their stop and frisk program, um, she had um, ordered a pilot project to test the use of body-worn cameras to see if they would be uh, successful or, or effective in reducing unconstitutional behavior. Our case, Davis versus City of New York, which was a related case to the Floyd case, um, joined Floyd when we uh, went in the, in the monitoring process. So right now, uh, because the cases are before uh, are subject to court monitoring, um, we are uh, with the Floyd plaintiffs in um, in working on this pilot program. And Ju Yun Kang from Communities United for Police Reform, your objections are to the rules, like when the cameras get turned on and who gets to see the footage and when? I mean, our objection, there's a few things. One is that big picture, we believe that the new policy that the NYPD put forward to govern these capotting-worn cameras are going to do more to protect abusive officers than they will to protect the public from abusive and discriminatory policing. There are huge problems with accountability and transparency, which include, number one, officers will be able to review footage before they give any kind of official statement or write an official record, which is very problematic. Um, They will not have to do any kind of pre-written statements. Secondly, and it provides the opportunity to actually conform what they would give as an official report to what they see on the tape rather than what they recall happening. Um, Secondly, individuals who might be subject to recording by body-worn camera or even the public and media organizations like yours will have a very hard time being able to access body-worn camera footage, if at all, which is completely unfair, especially given the unlimited access for officers, but it also goes completely contrary to the idea of having transparency or accountability be an outcome of use of body-worn cameras. And then the third, as you said, is that there are a number of interactions where there is not mandatory uh, recording of body-worn cameras uh, by officers. And what we've seen in studies that have been done preliminarily in other parts of the U.S. as well as in the U.K. is that when officers have significant discretion in terms of when they can turn cameras on and off, there's actually been findings of increased uh, use of force, excessive use of force, and police abuse. Ms. Lee, were you in court on Friday night, or was this... uh just handed down and, and you got to read the, the decision saying it can go ahead the way the N- NYPD wants? So with the new technology, these kinds of orders can be filed electronically. So we received it electronically a Friday night, um, with the, the court's decision. Can I add one thing about the court's decision? Which yeah. Jin, um, of course, you may have a different opinion, but what the judge basically said in the less than one-page opinion is that this was premature for the Floyd and Davis plaintiffs to weigh in or others such as us and the Leadership uh, Council on 
on civil and human rights. And we actually just think that's factually incorrect. This is precisely the time to object before the body-worn camera program rolls out this week. There will be no other time to object formally, at least through the court. We'll certainly review other options in terms of uh, political advocacy and so forth. But in terms of the court on the Floyd case, this is actually precisely the time and the only time to object before the rollout. Before the rollout. But you could object once it's rolled out. If a Floyd case was to oversee the NYPD with respect to uh, the stop and frisk procedures being, you know, as they were uh, carried out under the Bloomberg administration, uh, and they were ruled unconstitutional, um, and so there's court oversight of that. If the body cameras allow the police to return to any kind of practice that's considered unconstitutional, you can go right back to court, right? We can go back to court on other issues, as you're saying, and certainly stop and frisk is still under court supervision, but the body-worn camera policy and the program as ordered by the court is only a one-year pilot. So this is the only time to actually intervene before the pilot, which is going to be governed by these policies that the court is by default approving, would move forward. Yeah, I would agree with what Juhyun said. And also, just to put this into context, the reason that we have this pilot program is to determine whether or not body-worn cameras can be an effective tool to reduce or, and prevent unconstitutional behavior by police officers. So now is the time to develop the policies that, would, that, that we would want to have in place in order for that to happen. And, um, and, and, and it is difficult once the policies are in place to, um, to change them as opposed to trying to make them the best possible um, before, their, uh, before the rollout. Let's take a phone call. Here's Brian in Wappingers Falls. Brian, you're on WNYC. Hello. Uh, yes, good morning. Long-time listener of your show. Yes, um, I have several friends that are police officers. In fact, my, uh, uh, my daughter uh, is dating a police officer. Re- really fine people, very good people. Um, but my, my concern is, is it seems that if the police officer is going to have the sole discretion as to when the camera comes on, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of it being a, an objective observer of what actually occurred? Because it will show a viewpoint from when the officer wants you to see what happened. Um, I think if you're going to have a body camera, it should be, it should be on from the, from the beginning of the stop. So that way we could see exactly what went down, what the individuals' uh, actions were and what the police officers' actions were um, as a result of that. Brian, thank you for your call. And, Ms. Kong, that's exactly one of your most major objections, right, that the camera is not turned on from before the beginning of the interaction rather than once an interaction is commenced um, so that there's really no way of knowing if the stop itself was legitimate. Absolutely. No, we would absolutely agree with what Brian just said, that it no longer serves as the function of objective recording and actually obscures any kind of transparency and really becomes an obstacle to accountability. Um, and I would just add another point that's, I think, really important is that these these encounters, these um, um between the police officer and the person that they're encountering is very fluid, and they can escalate in a matter of seconds. So to kind of t- to, to limit the um, cameras being turned on in certain situations and not prior to, to when you know, situations escalate is problematic. Well, when are they required to turn the cameras on? 
So they're required to turn them on once they suspect someone of criminal activity. And the reason they have that language is because at that point, officers are legally authorized to ask questions that are a bit more accusatory. But they're not required to turn them on prior to that, when perhaps they have some sort of hunch or they want to do some sort of investigation, but they don't have enough suspicion to be able to ask accusatory questions. What we had said is that they should they should be required to turn on those cameras in those kind of lower-level encounters because, as I said, you don't know how quickly the situation may escalate, and it may result that the encounter may result in an unlawful stop, and you don't have the full picture of what happened. And an example of that, just in terms of kind of everyday uh, everyday incidents, is that the type of example that Jen is talking about that does not have to be recorded includes if an officer approaches someone, for example, a young person on a corner and says, give me your identification. I want to see who you are. Now, if that's not a what the lawyers call level three reasonable suspicion stop, it could still be a lower level encounter that they would not be mandated to record. So in the meantime, that young person does not feel like they cannot give their identification. Most of us would, regardless of age, hand over identification to an armed officer who requests it. And we can't leave that interaction during that moment. So that entire interaction, whatever it looks like, is not going to be recorded. Tanya in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Tanya. Hello, and thanks for, ha- for having me. Sure. What I don't understand about this is, like, if this camera is supposed to help stop all the bad doings, how are they, how are they allowing the, pe- the police to control it? I don't get how is that going to help the situation. I agree with the caller earlier. It's, they have more control. They can show what they want to show. And, and why waste our money on this stuff if it's not really going to help solve any problems? Tanya, thank you. Well, how, do you consider it, um, um, Ms. Kong, a waste of money? Or, or even though you're, we're talking about these particular objections you have to the way it's going to be rolled out, uh, do you want to take a step back and also say that you think this is going to be or has the potential to be very useful in preventing police misconduct? So I think where I would start is what what Tanya and what Brian raised as callers into this call, I agree with wholeheartedly, that if we actually can't get the big picture of the policy right, then it actually does potentially become a huge waste of taxpayer money. If these body-worn cameras end up doing more to protect abusive officers, and if they are not constructed in a way in terms of policy to be able to protect the public from abuse or make transparent when abuse happens or hold officers who are abusive accountable, then it's a huge waste of taxpayer money. It doesn't serve anything other than advancing more criminalization of over-police communities and surveillance of our communities in ways that doesn't doesn't make any of us safer. But would it not make police violence, the escalation to an unnecessarily violent encounter more difficult if they do have to turn the cameras on once they suspect criminal activity, um, which, you know, very few of these incidents take place before a police officer even suspects any kind of threat or criminal activity on the part of uh, the individual. I think that if we take some real-world examples, one is that there's the devil in the details. There's some major loopholes in the policy in terms of when officers are mandated to turn it on, which is why we would say there should be 
continuous recording when there's any kind of investigatory encounter, which doesn't require the legal definition of criminal suspicion the way that um, Jen had laid out. So if we use the example of uh, Eric Garner being killed and how horrific that was, all, many of us around the world actually saw that video footage. It's arguable that that footage the first four and a half minutes may not have been mandatorily recorded. Now, if you take out the first four and a half minutes, you don't actually get much of the context of what happened. And what you get is only the moment at which officers have basically put Eric into what we would say is a chokehold. You don't see the context and also are trying to uh, restrain him. You don't see the context where he's saying, why are you bothering me? I haven't done anything. You don't hear the context where uh, witnesses are saying, he just broke up a fight. Why are you bothering him? And so you don't realize that that entire encounter should never have happened. And that's the kind of information, if body-worn cameras are going to be used to reduce police misconduct, reduce police violence, that kind of context needs to be within the recordings that the public and certainly the people who are subject to the footage and their families should be able to see. Chandra in Ossining, you're on WNYC. Hello, Chandra. Good morning, Brian. Yes, when I lived in the Bronx, um, I was used to my sons coming home crying over encounters uh, with the police um, due to stop and frisk and other things. And I can tell you, they weren't stopping and frisking the right people from where I live. But my concern is um, I live here in Austin now, and my son came home about a couple of months ago. He drove up to, um, I think it was Route 9. He was on his way home from work, and there was a detour. And there was a police officer there, and he drove up and he asked the police officer, um, he wanted to ask him how could he get back to the main road. The cop, the police officer comes out with, don't call me yo. What are you doing calling me yo? It was an unnecessary utterance. And it kind of hurt me because I was wondering if there had been a verbal altercation started with that, what would have happened to my son, mm. you know? And um, it's, the, I, it, it's, it's culture. It's the way people are raised. It's that gun. It's the authority. And my heart goes out because nobody's saying that we want police officers killed, but I want my children to be able to travel and come home alive and in peace. Thank may, you. Thank you. Have may, a good day. May I ask, do you feel on balance that your son, among others, will be safer with police wearing body cameras? Um, well, I, well, like the guests are saying, if the cameras are not on to show, you know, the initial confrontation, um, there was a famous case in Florida where um, a, a major in the Miami-Dade um, police um, force, on his way to his home, riding through Volusia County, and he had an encounter with the police, but once again, it was turned on when the police officer determined to turn. No, that was the uh, dash cam camera. Mm -hmm. And I often wondered what was it that that police officer may have said to that, um, you know, major that made him explode the way he did when he came out the car. Because it wasn't recorded. Yeah. Sandra, thank, thank you very much. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully, to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 
29th, 2017, so I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. If you have views, thoughts, uh, suggestions, observations to share, dial in. Uh, we'll obviously touch on some of the news clips, things that took place over the last seven days. The number 641 715 The code 564943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Couple quick things uh, we will get to uh, before we get to callers. Number one, we are listener supported counter racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Uh, you can hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. You will see our PayPal button on the top right portion of the page. If you're not into PayPal, Drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have supported eight plus years. Uh, Hope the Cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, thanks to all the folks uh, who have supported. Got us things from our wish list as well uh, on Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, I actually got an item from my wish list this week. I didn't answer the door. My friend gets the door. I get the package. I sit down and she says, oh, man, look at the person who delivers this. So I hop up really quick and I look. This suspected race soldier is not in a U.S. parcel service uh, vehicle. There's no insignia on this uh, on the vehicle. Uh, he doesn't have on like. You know, and it's not like a FedEx uniform, UPS, none of that. This is like a beat up Volvo. And he has on like a yellow, uh, like when you see construction workers, if they're doing work on the street or something, so they have on like the yellow safety vest. That's what he had on. And like a beat up Volvo and a pair of shorts. It was, it was the strangest package delivery I've seen in my life. Uh, it even made me a little <laughs> paranoid for a second, like uh, racist. This might be their way of doing in Gusty Renegade uh, to get some uh, fake delivery guy to uh, slip something in my package. But it did uh, cause conversation in the house for a good five minutes or so because other folks had never seen anything like that either. But anywho, other things I wanted to get to uh, before we get to folks who dialed in context, I, I would easily take that wager you will hear the word context at least once a week when we do those audio clips. And again, I don't go through deliberately trying to find a segment where someone mentions context. It just happens to be that consistently when we talk about racism, uh, if we really are trying to get a truthful, accurate understanding of what racism, white supremacy is, how it works and why these things are happening, we really are going to need context. That is how you can really begin to make, uh, to get a deep, comprehensive uh, understanding of behavior when you have context. 
moving forward. Uh, I thought I took a lot of notes. I won't share everything. I'll just pick out a few things. The Young Turks, our favorite. We've talked about them, I think, uh, at least in my view. I don't play their segments because I'm a fan of the Young Turks. I play the Young Turks because I suspect that they are racist suspects. I've said this uh, repeatedly over the years. I've written about them specifically as being very skilled, very refined, because I think a lot of younger uh, non-white people, when I say younger, I mean like under 30 and under, maybe even, uh, even a little older, would hear them, see them, and say, oh, man, you know, Sink and, and Anna Kasparian, I think that's the uh, white woman. These guys, they're great. They talk about racism on a regular basis and, you know, they, they try to bring the truth out. I'm with them right on. They're against Trump. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I, truth. I would say just pay attention when they have segments talking about racism, like them discussing uh, Serena Williams and the abuse that she has received. They did not describe it as just this is typical uh, and the context, the history of white people showing flagrant disdain for black children and black motherhood long history all the way back to the slave auction blocks they didn't bring that context in. they just tried to make this very superficial and oh he's just attention seeking and this is this is how you get your name in the media right you know you just go out and say uh, really outrageous things it's like oh daddy look at me right that is nonsense that is not getting to it at all it's the same type of thing of just describing it this is just an ignorant white man this is just a dumb uh, white man not a race soldier this is not just another example of collective historic white pathology. No, this is just, you know, a dumb uh, white Romanian. And then they have the audacity to pivot from that to that no good Negro Stephen Smith. I hate his guts. He's rude and loud. I just how, how did we start out talking about Serena Williams and some racist lambasting her pregnancy to this nigger at ESPN that I can't stand? Oh, loud nigger. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. <laughs> like, uh racist all the way through and that sort of thing i suspect even when i was more confused i would not have even paid too much attention to that i would have still thought that these were cool a-okay well-meaning white gals and guys next and she even mixed up her black people in that segment she said she was trying to think of the nigger that she didn't like and she said uh, at first before she said Stephen A. Smith she said Alan West I have no idea how you can mix up Alan West and Stephen A. Smith they look nothing alike their names are nothing alike they don't have the same profession at all just one nigger another nigger just got confused in her head I guess next um Whoa, that segment on Frederick Douglass reminded me immediately of the delectable Negro for folks who uh, were with us for that study session. Uh, Vincent Woodard, really, really uh, provocative text. Uh, he talks about Frederick Douglass a lot uh, in the text and even speculates that Frederick Douglass may have been a victim of rape on the plantation by his white male enslavers. Uh, but in that segment, where they said that quote where Frederick Douglass didn't know he was a slave until he couldn't do things he wanted to do. I thought, and I know I've heard Mr. Fuller talk about this, that one of the main things, <clears throat> one of the main results of white supremacy is black people, non-white people in total having a low level 
of ambition. That's what it nigger. That's what it means. Niggardly having uh, niggardly thinking, very small thinking. Don't have great ambitions. Don't think about, you know, it being a total universe, it being a huge world. My whole existence is confined to about, you know, 10 city blocks. Really, really small thinking, literally and figuratively. That's what they want. Might, I was thinking it might be much, much easier to keep control of your niggers if you can get them where they don't want to do very much to begin with. And I, man, we talked about that last week with hiking, I think. Next, um, that segment, Desmond Cole, he was talking about the uh, education system in Canada and all of the suspensions of black males in particular. Seems so familiar. I wonder, I don't know enough about the Canadian uh, public education system, but I would wonder if the same would hold that white women would have to be at the center of suspending all these black males in Canada. Uh, I suspect, I don't know, we'll have to get more information. If any of our Canadian listeners uh, are tuning in and you know the demographics for public school teachers in Canada, that would be great. But I would think once again, it's got to be white women have to be at the center of this school to prison pipeline anywhere in North America, maybe anywhere in the world. Uh, if there are a large number of white people in that area. Uh, last thing I'll get in the segment where they were talking about also uh, the school system, the principal white principal suspected racist to got a transfer right on time for Mr. Fuller. White people don't get fired. They get transferred. She said she or she in this email correspondence said that she did not want uh, there to be a situation where it was just one white child in a class questions. I would have just asked. I don't have a problem. I don't want to pick it. I don't want to call names. I would just want her to, you know, answer. Why would it be a problem? Why would anyone have a concern about there being one white child in a class? Has that been a problem before? Have has anyone made it, you know, their business, their code that they don't like white children, that they're going to attack and bully a white child. If they catch one white child in the gymnasium, has that been a problem? Is there a record of that uh, conduct at this school? I would just have a lot of questions. Do you have those concerns if there's only one black child in a class? If there's only one quote unquote Latino child in a class? If there's only one uh, LGBTQ child in the class? If there's only one child with glasses? in the class. If there's only one child who went to bed in the last month, I mean, how far does the list go? Questions, 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 questions. I would just keep rolling with the questions and just see where she takes it. Uh, with that, we will get to the callers. Uh, the number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero, the code five, six, four, nine, four, three, Pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. I will encourage folks if you could take five minutes with your commentary, five minutes or less. Uh, that way, everybody will have an opportunity to share. Uh, if you have additional comments that you <clears throat> want to offer, you can wait till everybody gets at least uh, one turn to speak and then you can share whatever. If you have other questions, suggestions, uh, ideas, I got to see some of Henrietta Lacks this week. I uh, didn't want to forget that. I saw some of it. If, I think I mentioned it last week when it uh, debuted. Now I'll say it again. If anyone has seen the whole thing chime in, particularly if any of the folks who heard our book study session from, if memory is correct, 2014, definitely dial in. If you've been able to see uh, the HBO film, uh, Henriette, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks featuring uh, Oprah Winfrey, victim of racism. 
Uh, I will again, just for this program, remind folks, uh, no metaphors, please. I will prompt about that consistently within the system of white supremacy. Racists, they will deliberately make incorrect comparisons. They do this on a constant basis. Uh, They will in conversations on racism, do this to generate confusion. Uh, when you are submitting examples or concepts where you are equating things that are not similar, not equivalent, uh, it just generates confusion. That, and racists, in my view, they know this. Victims, non-white people, we have been around racists. They influence a lot of our behavior patterns, and we are still learning. I think sometimes just in trying to express our views, we use a metaphor or an analogy to try to convey our thoughts and often it just produces more confusion. It's not really generating an accurate understanding. And again, sometimes it's just it's comparing things, relating things that are not equivalent. So if we could just be direct, specific about what it is we want to say, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about that. Much obliged uh, with that. We'll go ahead and get to the callers. If you know you are in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button that would be appreciated to help us cut down on the distortion to the broadcast uh, with that the first few folks who dialed in who have a hand up uh, line should be open feel free Hi, yes sir Thomas in New York good evening guys good evening to all the callers um, yes I'm Paula Paula Beckerstein um had to endure dealing with those niggas to get that information. Um, and and um, I think that from reading the book study session to watching the movie, I, I would have liked to see more emphasis on um, the segments where they would go back into her past because um, there was a lot of racism um, just, just in their whole living conditions and um if I believe they lived on the plantation, I think that you know, they were related to the white owner and they were buried on one part. It's messed up. I, I I have to go back. But I think that that was um a deliberate attempt to hide all the racism. Um just it, they didn't really bring this up like this was a racist act. So, you know, it's just it's just um, something that happened to these poor people. That's the way I took it. Um, to the to the stories on um, trees, um, you know, air is the most important thing. Um, you know, we could live for weeks with no food or days with no water, but only a few hours with no ears and um, with no air. And um, I remember I had a map once, and it had all of the trees owned by the different European countries, um, all the, the very um, forested countries that they controlled, and um, they, they essentially still own the trees. And I thought of Haiti and France as well, how um, Haiti's um, trees were given to France. Um, Frederick Douglass, um, how example of how the former slave, of the slaves should treat their former master, you know, um, no anger, no resentment, you know, just get along and be mistreated forever. And um, that's just how they would like all of us to accept um, what they're doing to us. Um, the Korean clip about the hair, um, I guess it wasn't a Korean clip, but um, I just want to say the same way they control the 
air market. They also control the sneaker market here in New York. You know, the distribution of um, Jordans and um, retro Nikes and things like that. They seem to have a lock on that. Um, the clip about the, the cameras. And I just thought, why not the 32nd precinct, which is here in Harlem? Or, you know, even like a, a real black precinct like the 75th in Brooklyn. Um, why not um, why put the cameras in the 34th precinct, which is on um, Washington Heights? which is a very Dominican, you know, mostly Dominican area. There's a lot of blacks that live there, too. But um, for the most part, it's a lot of non-English-speaking people. And I thought that was um, done intentionally, um, whereas um, when they turn those cameras on, you're not going to be able to make out what the people are saying a lot of times. Um, lastly, um, I, I did have an observation. Um, I have a hospital story. I'll share that later. Um, my observation was today at Walmart, um, I, I was with my mother, and um, we went to Walmart, and um, I was kicking myself because I had vowed never to go shopping with my mother again, but, you know, either way, um, I felt like a little kid again, she's bumping into people, she's talking to them, so she bumps into this white woman, and um, the white woman, you know, speaks to me, and I'm pretty cordial and you know when she leaves my mother you could have been nicer and I'm like she's a, a white racist you know I'm well there you go with your racism stuff and she's not a racist so um to make the long story short we're on the line and the white lady's on the line next to um next to us and um she's ahead and she's in a five items or less line and there's a Arab or Indian man I couldn't really take out and just tell you he wasn't white he wasn't black he wasn't Spanish, Latino. Um, he was either Arab or Indian. He was. Um, he had way more than the five or whatever amount of items that was there. So she starts lashing out at this man, and he apologized, very apologetic. And she said, I don't care about your apology. And you're holding up the line, and the lines were real long. And he started, I guess, um, getting agitated at the way she was responding to him. So he defended himself, you know, verbally. And, um, you know, I'm not one of those women from your country who you could just talk to anyway, and you could go back to your country. And this was my mother, so this lady's not a racist, so I'm just sitting here with this crack. But I was waiting for the go back to your country to come up. Um, so after, I couldn't believe she acted like that. Oh, my God, you were right. And I just said, mm-hmm. So I'm with my mom. Thank you. Wow. Going shopping, I just talked with another listener about that, that you even had to be very mindful uh, about going shopping. We've talked about that uh, for years uh, on the program. I've had so many listeners where they've just had really nasty experiences, myself included, uh, going to the grocery store where uh, you got to be alert. Uh, I have not thankfully had that experience uh, going with children because I don't have offspring. But uh, I can I cannot fathom how that would uh, alter the equation, especially if you have younger children. So they're as you were talking about running around and doing stuff and that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, woo, be codified even when you are out and about, especially if you're out and about, I would say, with other non-white people who are less confused. So, you know, that they, you know, might do anything. <laughs> you don't know how they might respond to uh, different things that could happen when you're in an environment with a lot of people, a lot of uh, racists, especially. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from, uh, if you have a hand up, a line should be open. Uh, feel free to chime in. 
always grand when the people dial in with a hand up and spectate or hang out to, uh, I guess, wait for other folks to uh, chat. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I would like to thank uh, uh, Thomas uh, for his uh, report because uh, I was thinking uh, on something similar but uh, kind of like uh, apprehensive to bring it up because it it seemingly would be maybe considered to be not as important in some other things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been making an observation in the grocery store, uh, this particular grocery store that I go to when I have to uh, pick up groceries of different types. And it seems to be a, a uh, unusual uh, a large amount of white males who are employees. And I'm not talking about as managers. I'm talking about, uh, and these are, these are adult white males with white hair. Uh, and uh, they are on the cash, on the cashiers. They're, they're cashiers or, uh, uh, all sort of, uh, some of the people who, uh, uh, bag your groceries and, uh, a lot of things go through my mind when I'm seeing these white males, uh, without attempting to use any metaphors, one of them have a look of being what considered to be, uh, what a lot of people would consider to be the term goofy. Uh, the, the other one looks like some sort of strange looking uh, nerdish looking person, uh, just, just for two, for example. And I'm saying, boy, I would, I would like to see what's in their pass, uh, for, uh, to, you know, just to, just to, uh, if, if I knew it, I'd bring it up on the show, but I don't know. I don't know their past, but I would have to assume that it, I would be surprised if it'd be something like some sort of criminal record of some sort. Uh, uh, because these jobs are not high paying jobs and this area is a overwhelmingly, uh, uh, predominantly non-white black area. Uh, so I figure that the reason why they're doing what they're doing, where they're doing it at is because they did something really bad. Uh, maybe above, maybe not murder, but something like child molestation and, 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 uh, or, uh, you know, something of that nature. I, I have to, I wouldn't be surprised. I just put it that way. Uh, and they end up putting these type of people in areas where we, uh, uh, have to go and, and get things from. Uh, but I noticed that at some of these grocery stores down here, uh, one of the clips, uh, the female, it was the last clip, I think, well, the female mentioned the, uh, the the non-white black police officer that was confronted by a white police officer in the uh, well, north of me anyway. I forgot where it was at, but it was actually was a uh, was a, a while back, so I don't remember exactly what town or city it was in. Uh, yeah, I remember that story. Uh, the reason why I remembered it because he ended up being one of one of the uh, many police chiefs of the city of Miami Gardens. Uh, Real, real good guy. Pretty, pretty good guy. You know, uh, I, I knew of him uh, and have spoken to him on several occasions. Matter of fact, I had the opportunity to to acknowledge him 
you know, uh, uh, on the incident itself. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just, just a mentioning of that. And, uh, thank you. Appreciate that retired firefighter. Uh, other folks who dialed in, who have a hand up that we have not heard from, uh, if you have commentary, feel free. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. And hello to everyone. Um, this is a call, the female caller from Ohio. Uh, I just had a, I'm going to try to make this quick as I did have a lot of, a bunch of notes. Um, about the, I did get to actually listen to the segments this week. About the tree cutting, um, about the uh, tree segment, um, it just triggered in my mind how in a neighborhood where I have a relative who's been in the neighborhood that our family has owned the house in that neighborhood for, for many, many years. And for, it seemed like no reason at all, the city decided to start cutting down some of the trees that line the neighborhood. And it is a all-black neighborhood. I've, I've not seen anyone of any other, I guess, quote-unquote, nationality or ethnicity in that neighborhood. And oddly enough, when I was driving down the street near that neighborhood, actually the other day, I saw this really intoxicated white woman walking down the neighborhood. She had to be under some type of substance. So it kind of it's odd because it made me think about some other segments that you played, how they would cut down trees in other neighborhood in black neighborhoods to discourage drug dealing. And in my area or in my family's area, my family's neighborhood, um, you, you see white people who are highly intoxicated under some type of drug. I did catch a little bit of the LA riot um, documentary, the let it fall documentary. I definitely thought it was disturbing um, how they did treat the killer of Latasha Harlan, um, but of course the, the person is is non-white. I'm still unsure of how, what code that I should operate under um, when it comes to non-whites. I know that I, I do try to definitely exercise more patience when it comes to black people. Uh, also, with that same documentary, because I only watched a little bit of it, when they were speaking about the killing of James Mincy, um, it really disturbed me how it's overall in the whole documentary that whenever they spoke with, whenever they were speaking to police or ex-police officers or ex-law enforcement, some some people affiliated with them, they were primarily white men. And in the segment about James Mincy, it really disturbed me how the uh, the police officer, the white man, had said how he really still didn't show any regard for James Mincy's uh, girlfriend, who was pregnant at the time. And he had, he had used the terminology, if I'm not mistaken, how he had said basically, well, she was apparently or probably pregnant with his child, James Mincy. Um, that's who I'm referring to. And it really made me think about how... It's always, they're whites or suspected races are always making it seem as if blacks are just over-sexualized, also going back to the delectable Negro. Um, another thing that I thought of when Thomas 
uh, in New York was speaking about the whole grocery store story with the white woman. I was actually out with my sister, and we were at a children's uh, – it was like a, a store catered to children's items. And the and I had to use the bathroom. I had to get a, get the access to the bathroom from a white woman cashier that worked there, and she was wanting me to smile, basically, for me to get entrance to the bathroom. She was like, "Well, why don't you smile?" And I guess I kind of um, nervously smiled a little bit, and she was like, "Oh, well, you know, that wasn't so hard or whatever." So it, it just seems like. It's just so unnecessary, just the energy that we have to put in as black people to just even have some type of um, interaction with, with white people. Unnecessary, unnecessarily interaction, unnecessary inter- interactions with white people. And the last thing, which um, I, I couldn't understand, I live in a, I guess, a primarily uh, non-white area which is not that far away from a primarily white area. And I was outside with a, a non-white male friend of mine, and we were just standing outside talking, and we saw this white man um, riding his bike down the street blasting rap music. And it was just really odd. And it's like I didn't understand, like, if that was just a way for him to, like, you know, just, you know, practice racism. It just seemed really odd to me because he didn't seem like – you know, the a, a white person who would want to hang around blacks or anything like that, or what what was his reason for doing that? So it, was just, it, it just seemed really odd if that was just another way for him to uh, just try to be more codified or, I guess, try to make, his, make himself maybe feel a little bit safer um, while riding through a black area. Uh, that's all I had to share this week. Thank you for listening. Absolutely. Thank you for dialing in to share. I can <clears throat> I can empathize with those type of exchanges where you're talking about <clears throat> being in public and having to interact, have contact with this white woman uh, to get the key to use the restroom. Uh, I think a lot of folks have had those types of uh, experience when you're out in public. I think sometimes or at least with myself, just trying to get in that uh, code of, you know, hey, I, smiling is not necessary right now. Just, you know. May I have the key? Thank you kindly. And keep it pushing. <laughs> Just then, because sometimes it can uh, it can feel like there's pressure to conform to those. I think they call them social norms to smile and be nice and go all through those uh, social niceties, I think they call them. But, hey, just be in business uh, and to try to, as much as we can, minimize that with racists. I think that does help, uh, at least in my experience. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have a hand up, you have commentary you would like to share. Feel free. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Uh, good evening to everyone tonight. Uh, first, I I, I want to uh, say, you know, uh, about Dr. Wilson speaking on understanding the game in which we're playing in order to, to be winners, right? And I want to declare tonight that we're going to win and we're going to beat these white people at their own game. Now, so the game is monetary. So money is the major factor of the game. Now, they allow us to make money. So we got a lot of black people making money, see? So what I was thinking about 
you know, seeing that it's starting to be a lot of so-called black-owned banks. Uh, we got a couple of them in Houston. I'm actually in San Antonio, Texas now, but I go home here every weekend, every other weekend. And uh, I was I was thinking about what if all the black banks was to merge together, you know, and just make one bank. And this bank here is going to represent, you know, the uplift of us. And so what we all could do, the people that's working now, you know, work for white people or whatever, is just put $1 in the bank every week. So if it's 20 million people working, so we know we're looking at, and, and then this will also help us to get a better count of how many black people. Y'all got to screw that wind, too, man. If it, if it, if it, I'm going to try to be quick on my side. The wind blowing hard out here. But it, it'll give us a, a, a kind of a, a, you know, an estimate on how many of us is really over here. You know, and then we can figure out some kind of way that maybe, you know, people that ain't working could donate a penny so we can count them, count them too. You know, and then we just start taking that money every month and build industries to build our own stuff, you know, at, at cheap prices, you know, very affordable, but good stuff. And everybody can participate in it and, and buy our own stuff all under the one, the, the one thought, the one idea that it's because we finna win the game. See, if we stop spending money with these people, if we can build our own everything, we can, and then we can employ everybody. Everybody should be working. You know, uh, I think that that may be, and then see, it's so much resources and tools, you know, Facebook, we can make a movement. We can make a movement. And I know a lot of black people, they like to, shoot down ideas and look at the, you know, the, no, this can't happen and that won't work because it is, you know, and we shouldn't look at things like that no more. You know, anything that's dealing with, you know, supporting us and, and, and uplifting us, you know, getting us in a better position shouldn't be, you know, thought negative about or overlooked. Everybody should be down, you know, and uh, so what I'm going to try to do is get with somebody to see, but, but everything should could be under one name, and that one name represents what we finna do. Okay, I'm gonna mute my line because here comes this train, man. Thank you, God. Yes, sir. Thank you for dialing in, sharing, suggesting suggestions uh, with regards to uh, economics. Uh, I guess one thing that I would uh, share. Uh, I do think that it is important. It's kind of along the same lines when we talk about workplace racism. People talk about the importance of uh, black businesses or uh, black entrepreneurship, uh, which I you know, support. That is uh, important. Absolutely. Uh, but I do think it's important uh, if we're saying our own. Uh, in my view, just when, we, when we're using terms that suggest uh, that black people having their own banks or their own businesses, uh, somehow makes them independent of white supremacy. That is not the case. Uh, I suspect that uh, if black people wanted to merge and have all of the uh, black owned banks uh, come together uh, and form kind of one major uh, black banking uh, conglomerate, white people would probably have to give some sort of okay for that sort of thing to happen. And I also would 
uh, suspect that whites would do a lot to sabotage uh, that sort of effort. Certainly, if folks remember Alden McDonald, when we read Katrina After the Flood, black-owned uh, banker in Louisiana, uh, talked about the massive difficulties that he had in comparison to uh, white bankers. So that's one. Uh, and then the other thing in terms of if you are opening a business, generally businesses, you're going to need a lot of permits from white people, uh, zoning permits, business permit, depending on the type of business. Uh, that you happen, how big is your business going to be? You know, just even if you want to have a food truck, you might have to get a food handler's license or, you know, all kinds of things like directly, indirectly, white people are going to probably have pretty, uh, pretty critical say so uh, about uh, anything that happens that is worth something that is of value as long as the system of white supremacy exists. Not saying not to do it, just I do think that that is important to keep in mind in the, the planning strategizing process. Other folks we have not heard from at all. If you have a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Greetings to you, the host, greetings to the listeners. Um, I just wanted to uh, say the questions were, uh, were good and that people should I pay attention to uh, the news clips and just, you know, we should, we should be able to figure out by everything that we're experiencing that the major problem, the largest problem, the greatest problem that the world has and that black people in particular have, the greatest problem that we have is white people. They're the greatest problem to our existence. They're the greatest problem of our existence and in our existence. And we have to solve that problem. I know that if enough black people or a critical mass of black people hear the correct solution, well, a solution is a solution. If enough black people hear the solution to the problem of white people, then we will actually solve the problem of white people. And then so, you know, I don't know if, if the things that I'm doing is actually going to solve the problem exactly. I know it's working towards it, but I, I don't know how much I need to do, how little I need to do, if I'm doing the correct thing. You know, I, I just, I know that that more than anything, more than anything that I want, the, mo the most, the more than anything, I want to end this system of racism, white supremacy completely, permanently. And I don't, I just, I want to end it now. I want it as soon as humanly possible, as soon as godly possible, just as soon as possible. And and we need to all just figure out, you know, how important do we think this problem is to us? Because I'm telling you, that we're telling you that, that the people, our ancestors have been telling us that white people are the biggest problem in our existence. Thank you. Ashe. Other folks we have not heard from? See lots of uh, hands. Other folks who have a hand up that we have not heard from, uh, feel free. Maybe they're all in a noisy environment, uh, although that is a tad, uh, tad odd, but all right. <laughs> uh, while they're... Hello. 
Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. I was looking up something before I started to speak because I wanted to have the information for it to talk about it. Um, good evening, everyone. Um, oh, for good clips, I did see the movie Henrietta Lacks. I just think it really shows how naive, because I know some people think, oh, black people are stupid or whatever when it comes to things. I think it's just a naive naivety and not knowing things because there was one part, I guess, when she went to go get the documents for her sister. She was like, look, I have the paperwork, bam, 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 give me my stuff. So when, the I guess, the lady who Oprah was playing, when she got information, she seemed to do her best to try to use it in the best way possible. But just to show the naivete of black people and the horribleness of talking about how all these wonderful, all these things have been done to help people and not seeing the mo- not reading the book and just seeing the visuals in the movie, how all her her family in particular was sick. The people who really could have used themselves, you just look at they were all sick, so you know, that really bothered me. Um I know they had the one clip about you played one clip about education, how the white lady was like, Why can't we need one? The black the white kids can't be separate need to be, I guess, together. And there was um, a recent ruling saying in Alabama that this town, they can seg- go ahead and segregate themselves again around schooling, even though the judge said it was based on race and that these white people, they can still go ahead and start their own school. So, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily know how I feel about it because I don't know if I you don't want my students, if I had children, for them to be taught by white people and around white people anyway. So... But it's coming back. I don't know. And um, one more thing. Well, when I think of it, I'll just chime back in. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, Other folks uh, who have commented, and they have a lot of white people. Uh, I remember this for years uh, when they were talking about, oh, man, it's it's lurching back to uh, what they call segregation and, and all of that. You had a lot of particularly white people who uh, have uh, more finances, they were sending their children to schools where there were very few, if any, black people anyway. Uh, some of the folks who, uh, black, older black people, uh, they can tell you that they opened a lot of academies uh, that are just basically private school. We even, uh, when we had Christine uh, Green on the program, yeah. At the beginning, that's right, 2016, that was what, in her book, where they opened up a whole separate school uh, for white children. That school is in operation to today, although now they finally do allow uh, black children. But for the longest, uh, black children weren't even allowed to attend it, and that was, you know, pretty widespread uh, in the U.S. So, yeah. Uh, Other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. May I proceed? Yes, sir. Yes, greetings, guys. Greetings, uh, the rest of the callers. I just want to share a few observations, uh, a couple, a few quick ones. Briefly regarding the issue on the schools, I, I was able to hear and read a couple of um, accounts of that um, ruling and here in, in Kansas City, the part of the world that I'm in. Um, that is the rule of the land. I mean, white people send their children to white academies because they like they have a lot of language academies french academies um and they do not send their children to uh, the kansas city public schools that is just the way it goes here in this part of the world so it's interesting to see alabama following suit um 
you know, as I always say, they, they should have left the Union troops in the South because uh, Southerners and white people in general do not know how to act right. Secondly, I wanted to um, speak about the news reports regarding uh, the situation in uh, North Korea, the supposed um, the supposed ratcheting up of tensions, which has been a lot in the uh, quote unquote media, as, uh, as Dr. Cambon uh, calls it the cesspool media, because that's exactly what it is. Um, it was very good for me to hear some of the um, white rhetoric, because it's just a reminder that there's only one war, and that's the war between people who practice racism and those who who don't, and the wars that go on between in, in between those uh, the races. Um, I, I think that is a good reminder for all non-white people. But having spoken to a um, Spanish national recently who uh, works for the North Korean government, um, we had a brief, very brief conversation. I I was able to see a documentary by the name of um, I believe it was called Propaganda Game. The Propaganda Game. Um, it was done by a Spanish filmmaker who. Um, interviewed the only foreign national who works for the uh, North Korean government, which is, um, I forget his name, is Alejandro Kaus, I believe. Um, but we had a brief conversation online via Messenger um, regarding some of the information that was in the documentary. And I really would suggest that people look for that information in that documentary, The Propaganda Game. Uh, just letting people know that, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. If black people had a nuclear weapon, we'd probably be acting like North Korea. And there's an obvious reason why the North Koreans take that particular stance. But I think from all of the uh, white media that we're being blasted with, it's, it's uh, good for us to keep that in context. Um, and the, uh, the next thing I wanted to, to speak about was um, regarding a, um, some local events here. Uh, the White Privilege Conference is happening right now in Kansas City, but it seems as as the um, uh, the white people, the suspected races would have it. I'm being avoided like the plague. I cannot find anyone. Um, uh, forgive the, the the use of that. Um, I am I, I'm I'm not being I'm just not being able to get them. I, I I'm here in the city. People know that I, I do work. Um, in, in the black community um, among non-white people here, but um, it's extremely difficult to find these hundreds, possibly thousands of white people here for this conference. Uh, I, 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 I can think any other way that there's just racist interference and that I'm being avoided. I've prepared a question. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's disappointing, but it's also expected under the system of white supremacy. And the final thought that I wanted to express was Regarding today, there was events with some um, brothers who formed part of the, the Nation of Islam, but they had a martial arts event, and I just wanted to share, there was a, um, a, an extreme level of Black self-respect displayed at a Black martial arts event. Um, I don't, uh, I'm not touting a certain school or putting that out there for anyone, but whenever there's a group of non-white people, specifically non-white black people that get together and there's extreme levels of black self-respect where there's, there's the uh, correct uh, relative to this wicked system type of treatment, um, correct treatment that we see, which is so rare among non-white people, uh, which is so far from the trashy terroristic behavior of white people. It, it just really feels, uh, it fills my heart. So 
Um, I did wanted to share that, that that has been probably the highlight of the month. Um, I've been having, um, I've been suffering under the system, uh, unduly difficult circumstances for me personally, but that really was a very um, positive um, and encouraging event that happened today. And I'll take my call offline. Thank you for listening. All right on black self-respect. I posted for people who follow on Facebook, I posted the link for the propaganda game. You can watch it uh, online. If you follow on Facebook, it's facebook.com. The problem is white people. And you'll see the link. Other folks uh, we have not heard from line should be open. seeing other hands other folks do we uh miss anyone because i do see other hands anybody that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all may i be heard yes ma'am um hi peace everyone i just wanted to make an observation i had at work today i just wanted to share um today i was at work at a client's house and this lady was this white lady was going on and on telling me about all these costumes she's designed and is currently working on, and she started to chuckle when she started telling me about this costume she designed for a play called Jesus, I guess. Um, she made it a point to say the person who requested this Jesus costume was a black man, and at first he wanted a costume of Jesus on the cross, but I guess he changed his mind, she said, and now there was going to be a coffin involved, and then she chuckled again and went on to say, you know, it's funny, I'm being asked to make a costume of Jesus, and I have to make it lighter per request when he was from the Middle East, so I'm sure he was black, um, and that was end of discussion. And also, um, for the caller from Ohio, I believe, um, and the white woman telling her to smile to get the bathroom key, um, I kind of agree with Gus. Um, you don't have to smile to these white people, um, just and I just have the bathroom key. I don't make it, it's not in my code to smile at white people. Um, I've worked a lot of like grocery jobs or just jobs in general. Um, and people have told me to smile and I will literally think I'm smiling or maybe I'm not smiling enough, but I don't do that. Or even if so, why do I have to smile? Cause if I smile too much, then something's wrong. Or if I'm just, nothing's on my mind or I'm just being myself either way, I'm, Damned if you do, damned if you don't. So it's in my code to just um, proceed with what I was doing. And um, thanks for listening. That's all I had to say. Hang on. Appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Other folks who dot workplace racism every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. tune in the religion of white supremacy uh other folks who dialed in uh if we have not heard from you feel free did we miss anybody seems like we still have quite a few hands any folks who uh, have a hand up that we have not heard from at all I will assume that we got everyone or that the folks who have a hand up are someplace where they cannot talk or maybe they're just listening or what have you. Um, I don't know if folks got to see any of the, uh, cause I mean, there were a plethora of documentaries and retrospectives and articles and you name it. They had it a uh, commentary about the LA riots with so-called uh, and number one, I 
think it, the irony should not be lost uh, that the NYPD, uh, they launched their body camera initiative uh, on the very week of the 25 year anniversary of Rodney King. And even even with that, uh, when people, you know, all the talk uh, that went on about, you know, body cameras, then this is great. And, you know, this is the proper way to honor uh, Michael Brown Jr. and Eric Gardner and Sandra Bland and you know, just insert name. This is the proper way to uh, pay our respects to them is to get body cameras. That way we'll know what happened. Uh, and then they just spent a week <laughs> rehashing and going and getting every piece of footage that they had grainy didn't matter from 25 years ago to basically just make a tribute to black uh, Negro hooliganism. In my opinion, that's what it's, that's what it's looked like. In my opinion, a listener uh, made me watch, um, let it fall. I think that's John Ridley's uh, documentary that came out last week and they had another one or this. It's been tons of them, but I watched uh, that one and uh, it was horrendous. It was just, it was about 90 minutes. It was a two hour documentary on air uh, it was about 90 minutes of just uh, black people. Uh, the Reginald Denny thing, I think that took up about 30 minutes. The the white man who was beaten uh, at the truck. And, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that this happened. And they kept saying exactly what I said about those uh, analogies. And I think it was John Singleton. Excuse me. Let it fall was John Singleton, unless I'm in error. Uh, John Singleton's uh, documentary. He said that Reginald Denny, he says this in the film, he says that uh, the Reginald Denny situation was just like Rodney King. It's the same thing. And I said, no, it is not the same thing. You got a person being beaten. Okay. And on camera, I guess, by a group of people uh, and on camera. Uh, the people who beat Reginald Denny, the black people uh, who beat Reginald Denny, resorted to counter violence. They all were prosecuted, convicted, every last one of them, named them. Uh, and I said, now they could do that and they wouldn't even need a white person in the helicopter. They could get one drone to go out and get the footage and then come back and do their, you know, facial recognition and all that. And boop, we'll have the convictions, you know, by the end of the week, Put, prop our feet up and it'll be great. One for the prosecution. Uh, the people who beat the race soldiers who beat Rodney King, they were not convicted. This is not the same thing at all. Not criminally convicted. The black people who were convicted uh, in the Reginald Den Denny situation, they were criminally uh, convicted. So in my view, it's not the same thing at all. Uh, and that's the root of why this happened to begin with. But that that was not conveyed in the vast majority of these uh, projects. And the other feature from the information that I've seen, unless I've been misinformed, most of the people who did the looting, if you want to call it that, from 1992 were not black people. I think white people, uh, they are very good at spending lots and lots of money and going and studying riots. I think we talked about that before. White people, they rehearse for riots. Non-white people do not rehearse and have practice for looting and rioting, if you want to call it that. White people, they do. They have machinery and they prepare for these types of events. And then they go study what happened. They have data that said most of the people who did the looting were not black people. And I did not see that conveyed and really anything that I saw, anything that I read uh, pertaining to the riots. It, it really gave the impression that Negro hooliganism, exactly what I said. Anybody did, did folks see or read any of the coverage Did they, any mention of Rodney King's death in 2012 for anyone? Did you all see any of these projects uh, on the so-called L.A. riots uh, 25 years ago this past week? Uh, hello? 
Yes, sir. Oh, hey, uh, no. No, I haven't uh, seen any of it. And I'm not sure if I want to because to me, this will, this is looking like last year with all of the retro OJ Simpson projects. So I don't know if I'm going to do it. And also, now you may agree with me, you may not, but this is also a way to put the focus on quote-unquote black people writing because since, rather, since Donald Trump was elected from the night he won the presidency till now, white people have engaged in a lot of writing. We, we have four days of it in New York as well as other riots across the country. Last week in Berkeley. So it could be it could also be done to take the focus off all these white riders. Oh, and the uh clip on the young Kirk, you were just so correct. I mean every time I hear them it's just the biggest thing that come out of those two is just really phenomenal, although not surprising. And, and and this idea that somehow, oh, you just, he's just being, you know, just saying something controversial, like Tommy Laren, no, uh, Ilya Nastasi was this way before she was born. So just the dishonesty in that statement right there. Oh, and the uh, the councilwoman Fleming, I believe that was her name, is really interesting how these reports are done as with as with DA Ayala and other black people that the words crime, criminal activity are not mentioned, even though clearly Ayala was a victim of crime when a a white clerk could just threaten her. And now we have this councilwoman being threatened and she can call the police and nothing can happen to this white guy. And again, I, I can at least describe this as threatening a public official and attempted assault. But no law enforcement official said that. And nobody reporting this story. So it's it's just really interesting that we you know black people can have these titles and unfortunately they are just titles. Oh, and a couple of weeks ago, uh, you had asked, "Is this program helping people?" I just want to say it has. You know, I've been able to 
formulate my words better and thoughts. So much so that there was a uh, blog that I used that I would comment on. It's called Black Butterfly Seven, or we held these twos to be self-evident. I was asked by the owner of the blog to be a, com a guest commentator. And I submitted two articles so far. One was on the Dearborn police station that two white men on mass ski, on mass body armor came into and no cop was in fear of his life. This went on for three minutes, and they were talked into surrendering. I mean, literally walking into a police station with an assault rifle, ski mask and all. And the whole thing began because these white guys were driving in the mall area in that in that same getup and police pulled them over but they said they were in fear of their lives so that was why they got out the car with their guns and decided to go to the police station that was my first column my my second column which was just published was was about a recent case that happened in Indiana. The title of it is A Peaceful Protester Disrespected the Military and Accused Marine Killer Didn't. Naturally, this is it's about the massive outrage Colin Kaepernick was subjected to. Even though he didn't harm one person, for not standing for the national anthem. And last week, you had this white man named Eric Schaefer who was at a McDonald's and a, and a sergeant named Justin Lampkins honked his horn in the drive-thru. Schaefer didn't like it. He goes to the back, punches this Marine. He walks away. Then he turns around, punches him again. Lampkin shoves him, and Schaefer takes out his gun, shoots him dead. Now, it's also interesting that this white guy had a warrant out on his arrest, had a warrant for another crime. He's also charged with arson. And when the police caught up with him, his friend surrendered. He resisted arrest. But, of course, no cop felt threatened for his life to the point that deadly force was needed. And the point of that article being, how's it a peaceful protester 
can be accused of disrespecting a military, but but a guy who guns down a Marine in cold blood isn't. That's all I have to say. If any of y'all would like to read it, it's at you can you can put on W you can put in Black Butterfly Seven in a search engine or we hold these tubes to be evidence in a search engine. Thank you. Right on. It's posted uh on my Facebook page as well. A peaceful protester disrespected the military. What about an accused Marine? killer uh linked right there where you can check it out glad to hear listeners are not being spectators being active trying to share constructive information uh that is awesome uh reading and writing more important than watching television uh the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate are there folks that we have not heard from at all so we got everybody well i just i just wanted to report that i i did see uh uh the uh documentary on the uh 25th year anniversary of the uh, LA riots. Yes, I, I saw it. Which one? There were so many. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this one uh, was illustrating the uh, the uh, the disagreements between the non-white black male mayor of Los Angeles and the uh, police chief. And uh, what fell into the void, which normally does, <laughs> uh, uh, is uh, non-white black people in general. Uh, basically, uh, the uh, police chief imposed a uh, strategy uh, they were saying in the in the documentary imposed a strategy of uh, backing quote unquote backing off, and uh, uh, and I suspect because primarily everything I heard about what was damaged was either uh, non-white black or non-white Korean. Uh, so I can imagine the white people in Simi Valley looking at it with popcorn and just laughing. At the whole scene of non-white people running around, uh, 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 causing malice with one another, off of uh, you know anger of uh, the uh, Rodney King incident and the uh, the unfortunate situation with the uh, the non-white black female child uh, that was murdered. Uh, so uh, that's basically how I took it. Uh, I remember when it, when when the actual event took place in itself, but uh, that was the one that I saw. Did you see that one, or was it was it another one? It was tons of them. Um, they, uh, I did not see that one. Uh, the one that I saw, I can correct myself because there were so many of them. John Ridley, uh, who is a black male, uh, he did "Let It Fall." 
John Singleton, also a black male, uh, that uh, he did a different documentary on uh, the riots. His film uh, has a longer uh, title. It's L.A. Burning, The Riots 25 Years Later. That's the title of his. And there are many others. Uh, There was one that was on ABC. uh, John Ridley's his was on ABC, I think, yesterday. Uh, I don't know if that's the one that you saw or not. there were just tons of them. Uh, there were even, I was even looking, thinking about writing about the number uh, of these different uh, films that they released. They had uh, the Lost Tapes, National uh, National Geographic's L.A. 92. <laughs> I mean, it just got tons of, even that, that National Geographic has gotten on it. That just further to me reinforces what I've said, uh, that to me this just looks like Negro hooliganism, uh, the apes, which is what they said at the time, gorillas in the mist. The, the apes have gone wild uh, in, right. in L.A. That's what they that said. That became a popular uh, slogan. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They said that at the time, Planet of the Apes movie is about to come out in a few months. That's, I think, you know, that's what it looked like to me. Just we're going to take time to portray black people as hooligans. Uh, and, oh, my gosh, they run wild. We need to, you know, make sure that this doesn't happen, which is exactly what Trump campaigned on. We need to get tough with enforcement officials and at the same time that, yeah, body cameras and all of that, you know, we don't, we don't want the Negras to, we don't want this to happen again. You know, primarily uh, this documentary also reiterated the history of uh, the Los Angeles police force and how uh, it was perhaps the, uh, the police department that, that endorsed a more, military uh like uh look as far as equipment and procedure uh on how they quote unquote go about the means of oh, it's not even of, uh, what, what was that Gus? I, I apologize. Oh okay okay uh yeah on on how they go about uh with their strategy of law enforcement. Uh uh, I mean, even from the standpoint of a lot of these quote-unquote elite uh, teams that they have, uh, that that's now that's all around this part of the the the, the northwestern hemisphere. Uh, L.A. Uh, police uh, basically started them like SWAT, and SWAT originally originally was designed to destroy the Black Panther Party. Uh, matter of fact, Geronimo Pratt was significant in the Los Angeles chapter uh, when that uh, that uh, uh, shootout uh, took place. Uh, uh, there is there is documentary on it. I think there's a book on it also. But uh, and they they incorporated uh, the SWAT team basically to uh, and basically it was a brief battle that took place. Uh, on a street in uh, Los Angeles, but uh, yeah, they uh, they kind of like went through the history also of the I can't remember the the uh, white male racist suspect who was the police chief at the time. He was a uh, a uh, uh, subservient to this 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 uh, first police chief. Uh, and, uh, basically just carried on his, uh, mentality and strategy. Uh, and, uh, 
the uh, results finally came to uh, a tipping point uh, with the Rodney King uh, incident, apparently. Though that's, that's the way the documentary went, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I would have liked to have get my hands on some books or something more deeper. And then again, uh, I also kind of like want to know who's writing the books or documentaries and whatnot, that sort of thing. Uh, Because I see too many people, including non-white black people, who, uh, uh, who are very interested for some reason in, in, playing on movies and whatnot, uh, Los Angeles uh, uh, police officers, quote unquote, uh, in movies. They, they enjoy, seem to seemingly enjoy uh, doing it. Uh, they happen to be comedians, some of them comedians, uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, and uh, I don't think that's such a constructive thing to uh, be a part of, but uh, VGQ, I guess, uh, is a means of making money. May I add something? Yes, ma'am. About the, um, this is the female caller from Ohio, um, and I had already said something brief about the documentary Let It Fall um, and James Muncy. I I also, in the documentary, I, like I was saying before, how the white men, they're definitely very, um, I, I didn't think they were as codified with their racism, but I feel like, like other people have said on the broadcast, I, I definitely feel like the show has helped me tremendously to identify the racist tactics. But I remember one law, uh, one ex-law enforcement official, something like that, some person like that, he had said he was commenting about the chokehold and how he was like, oh, well, in the academy, well, we had to choke each other out all the time. And so we didn't think that it would basically how it should not have killed this um, non-white black male. And that was definitely something that I, that I noticed very easily, how it's, it's almost as if, at one point in time, when you're choking out people, it, it's fine, and and then all and the and, but then when you and they they said that on the way to the hospital or um, they just didn't know how he he died from the chokehold, so he was so powerful that he got away from them in the midst of them trying to arrest him, but then he still died from the chokehold that. They, that the other law enforcement officers had to go through themselves, um, which could also be playing into the whole homoeroticism that they like to indulge in. Another thing in the documentary, uh, just actually um, after that portion about how they finally outlawed the chokehold, they said, well, um, well, now we're going to bring in the baton. So now it's better to beat someone down with a baton than to choke them out, and they were actually talking about when um, when it changed over from the baton from the chokehold to the baton. They were talking about how the different ways, if you applied the chokehold in an incorrect way, how it would, it would stop the blood flow and it would kill the person. But if you stop the blood flow to the carotid artery, it'll just knock them out. So I definitely thought that that was um, that was definitely something that 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 made me aware of how 
inhumane these these people can be. Um, also, I wanted to say something quick about the Henrietta Lacks um, documentary. I haven't seen it. I did actually go back in the archives and listen to the the reading of it. And just based on what I'm, I've been hearing during the broadcast, I've, and also just I, I remember listening to the book and how how Rebecca Sclute, I feel like she's she should not be on this the racist suspect list. I think that she is a, a full-out racist, just how she portrayed the black pathology. And I remember in the broadcast how that was, how other people were talking about that as well. And also how when she was talking about the, um, the white family members of, of um, Henrietta Lacks, of the Lacks family, how they had also married within the family family. It was just something that was quickly um, spoken about. Oh, well, Billy married Mary, and even though they were cousins, but it wasn't profiled as much as, and, and almost as degraded as much as how um, Henrietta had had married her. I think it was her cousin, and I just felt like. It, I, I I cannot bring myself to watch that documentary because I feel like it would not be that much different from the terrible book. I feel like I would be able to learn more outside of that horrible book. And I feel like she, Rebecca Sclute only used the book and now she's using the movie to just further her own um, racist agenda. I, I completely feel like she, she has not and has no intentions of really helping out the black family. Uh, that's that's all I had to say about that. Thank you. Mm, it's it's not just. Uh, yes, sir, Thomas in New York. We can hear you. I just wanted to make sure I got in. Uh, the HBO project is not a documentary. I think I had said that incorrectly previously. That it's a documentary. It is. It's not. It's just a, a film, a docudrama. I think they might call it. But Oprah Winfrey's in it. It's not a documentary. But uh, I when I I couldn't even watch the whole thing. All of the feelings that I had, if anything, it affirmed that I thought we did a good job, that our analysis was accurate in the book. Because I remember seeing, I think Karma was on. Uh, we did the book study. And I think as we got towards the end, she was saying, you know, I think Thomas and I both, he's coming up to speak now. Uh, we were both, we had been talking about the anti-blackness in the book and how you would see black people with a book like this now with the film. And I think as we were getting to the end, she was saying, okay, I think I'm seeing why you all have emphasized this so much uh, throughout the reading. I felt that exact same sentiment, like immediately within the first, like 10 minutes uh, of watching the movie. I got it. uh, Watching the new film. Uh, Much obliged. Thomas in New York, proceed. Um, Yeah, I was going to add in that it wasn't a a documentary. I'm glad you did. Um, In it, the, the movie was not informative um, at all, as per the um, the book, where you got a real grasp of, and I think she did do a good job with certain aspects of the book of explaining exactly what the, what Hila was, how important Hila is. I mean, it's the most important medical um, invention or innovation probably ever. And um, I didn't get that that just from the book, um, just just to just to say, you know, this black woman sells 
has allowed for everything medically-wise in the last 50 years to happen, including the cell phone, including the computer. I mean, everything gets tested. How is it going to interact with humans? Let's test the cells on it. And I just felt like um, that was left out. And, of course, I think that's intentional because everyone owes those people money, everyone. Um, um, as per the, the Rodney King riots, um, you know, it's funny that after all these years, calling it the Rodney King riots really obfuscates from what it really was. It was the day that those cops got off for beating this man half to death and um, black people up rose. Um, I hate when they call um, black uprisings riots because only white people can riot. Um, if this was a riot, it would have took place in Beverly Hills and then you would have seen a bunch of dead black people. So it, it just, it's just inaccurate in my opinion to call it a riot. But um, nonetheless, um, of all of the uprisings that I've experienced, that was the that was the one where it was definitely more racially intensified, uh, even in the outlook of Ferguson and Baltimore, whereas, I mean, you didn't see no um, Denny's getting pulled out the truck in Ferguson and Baltimore. You know, those were pretty staged, in my opinion. Because that was like the raw emotion. It was real. It was like, uh, you know, they let this, they let them off. We're going to grab anyone we could get in uh, act out our own justice, and I, I just um, that the passion from that. I didn't um, see any of the documentaries on it. Um, I saw one a few years ago. I think uh, Firefighter kind of mentioned it because it sounded a lot like the one I saw. Um, as for you, um, even talking about the apes and monkeys, um, calling black people, you know, apes and monkeys, and I experienced that last night at the hospital. That's what I was gonna um, chime back in and say. And, um, you know, having a good night at the hospital for the first day, it's over 80 degrees in the area. And, you know, just walking around around 4 in the morning like, man, you know, this is a good night. No one came in with any heavy trauma. And around 5.30, you know, you hear trauma. So, brother comes in shot. Um, he didn't make it. You can kind of see what I saw when they wheeled him in the way they were working on him that, um, you know, that they were keeping him alive with their chest concussions and things. So once they wheeled him in the room, it was only a matter of time. And also my superstition kicked in was, um, right before that happened, it just started pouring down rain. And I said, oh, you know, that, that you know. But either way, um, as the night went on, the cops, um, a lot of cops in the hospital um, last night, one uh, escaped. So they let someone escape, a prisoner escape, so they had a bunch of cops there for that. But, um, the you know, the shooting, uh, anytime there's a shooting, they, they lock everything down. They, they don't want any retaliations, anything to happen or, or anything. So, um, you know, they're all over and they're describing what happened and they're telling other staff members that came down, you know, it's describing it. And um, they, they're such graphic and it's, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's the zoo, it's the jungle, you know, these animals, these, you know, they act like a bunch of apes, you know, gorillas, you know. I mean, that was just how they're describing it amongst each other. And uh, when it's a graphic detail describing, you know, how messed up this man looked and, you know, how you know, he was finished. And so I, I decided, you know, I, I heard enough. You know, I turned the corner 
And right there listening to all of this was this guy's mother. She was just in tears. And, I mean, it was almost like she, she wanted to walk past, but she couldn't because she was hearing all of this. And they talked about him like he was an object, not a person. You know, and I just felt so bad for her. You know, I went over and gave her a hug. Um, it just was an instinct, you know. Um, but just real, you know, sad to see that happening. Just the way every time there's an incident, just to, just to hear how they describe it, it's just um, always very racist. It's always never people. It's never looking at us as actually people. Um, it's objects or animals. And I'll meet my line for now. Thank you. Appreciate that. I think I think Norm Stamper talked about that uh, as a code. No humans involved. Norm Stamper is a former uh, enforcement official for a decade, like three decades, long time chief of police uh, in Seattle and an enforcement official in California. I heard Mr. Steele. I uh, just want to check uh, the other black female caller in Ohio. Did you have uh, commentary? You should be with us. Um, thank you. Uh, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. That is okay. Um, just real quick, uh, good evening to guest the host and to the callers and listeners on the line. Um, just first, I just want to ask some question. On the segment with Frederick Douglass, didn't the man say that Frederick Douglass returned to the plantation that he was on and forgave the people? Did he say that or did I just That's what I thought he said. Misheard. Okay, okay. I just want to make sure. Okay. Um, as far as the, the movie uh, Henrietta Lacks on HBO, unfortunately, I, well, I didn't get to see the movie. And actually, I, you know, I, I listened to the book review that you all did, that you know was done on medical apartheid. So, and I remember when I first I had went to the library and got that book, Medical Apartheid, and I started reading it, and I could not read that book. And I remember I laid it in the back seat of my car, so for like two weeks I drove around you know, with this car, with this book laying on the backseat of my car because, you know, it's like, okay, Kim, I'm going to pick this book and I'm going to read and I'm going to read it. And I just really couldn't, so I ended up taking it back to the library. So when this book came out, The Henrietta Lack Story, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, we went to school together and everything, we talked about the book. And she, you know, I had read it, but she had come to the conclusion that, you know, she says basically the author of the book, Rebecca Sploot, you know, she's the one making the money. And it was, you know... She, my friend that was talking to me said that basically she was exploiting the family also. And so um, I didn't see the movie, but I saw a YouTube uh, live thing from Yvette Carnell. And that's, you all know, that's her with Breaking Brown. And she's, um, I think she's also a part with Dr. Bryce Watkins. Well, on her program, she did a review of the, uh, the movie. And I'm just going to be honest with you, she had nothing nice to say. As a matter of fact, she, she said... She felt Oprah told the author's story, not not Henrietta Lacks' story, but basically she told the author's story, and she even said that the the pictures of the black people. I know uh, the, one of the female callers said that everybody in the family was sick, and I know Yvette Parnell said that the picture of the family was just like they were all crazy, and I even think Deborah, the character that Oprah played, excuse me, played. Uh, even the way she was depicted, but she also said that there were some things, I guess, that had happened to Deborah. I think she said she had been raped or something, which may would have explained, so like you said about context, you know, that sometimes you have to put these things into context that you could understand what you're looking at. And, um, but she, I mean, she had nothing nice to say that, so just to any of the callers, if you go to her, her uh, 
page on YouTube. You can find it, the video. You can listen to it. It, it's, uh, it was a live stream, but you can find the video, and she'll give a review. So I, I just didn't have any interest on it because I, last week somebody said that um, the the voice affectation that Oprah was giving was like in, in Sophie. You know, I just want to know what happened to my mama. And I saw a review of that. And it just tripped me off immediately. Now, I'm not, you know, I, I recognize our history here and stuff like that and how we learn, you know, to speak, you know, how we learn to speak from listening to white people because we were, you know, at a period wasn't allowed to be educated. So, you know, I get that. But if every time I'm watching a movie that you are in and then that's what you're giving me, then after a while I just get tired of that and I don't want to see, you don't want to hear that. Um, as far as the education, your clips about the education, the principal, the principal knew it. The principal knew what she said, and I thought your commentary about that you know people should ask a question. You know, um, you know the question about the white student. Why should the white student be in the class? Has anybody you know been hurting the white students in their class? Or, you know, my thing is, what about black students being in, in the only black student? You know, so I think there were some questions like you said that should be asked, and I'm gonna tell you the truth how I feel about it. I'm like, good, put all the white students in the classroom, put all the black students in the classroom, and get some black teachers, and let's teach these black children. I mean, it's, it's evident what she said. She cannot get out of it. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much, you know, like you said about white people, they clam up, they shut up, they don't say nothing. Then when they come out and speak, they'll give you buckets and buckets of words that when you walk away from it, you're looking at each other like, what did she just say? You know, and then as far as the school district in Alabama, See, I think that we need to start capitalizing on some of this stuff. The district, what, I think the judge spoke with Fort Sons, you know, basically saying that, oh, my God, this will mess up the, you know, integration or whatever it is, but I, I'm going to let them succeed, you know. So I, I just kind of feel like the black people that's left in the city, you ought to be willing to sue to get that property and now, you know, get in there and begin to educate your children. I mean, we can't, I just feel that we can't as a people continue to allow our children to literally be destroyed in these school districts. And, you know, if these white people are pulling out this fine, it's, it's time that we have to come back uh, and um, I want to say stand on our, on our feet, but I know that's a metaphor, but <laughs> we just got to come back and, I'm sorry, just stand on our own two feet, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, just like you said about these um, uh, things, documentaries about this uh, uh, riot of the police riot or the rebellion of the black people in L.A., you know, um, how they're, they're just showing, the, you know, videos and documentaries and stuff of, like you say, Negro hooliganism, hooliganism, which gets those people stirred up. And then, like Thomas was saying, you know, last night, that, that's all a part of it. You know, sit up there, you... You, you're going to, and, and they got to give it in their head that we're animals so that when they go out there and do what they do to us, it's just like, hey, well, we just shot an animal. We, like you said, no human involved. So um, I just, uh, that was just a comment. Oh, one last thing, one last thing. Gentleman called in basically saying how black people, we need to have banks, you know, all that. And I, I remember you, you made a very good commentary because if we're in this system to have a bank, we go have to go through this system and then, like you said, and then, you know, that white people would be the one basically saying whether you can have that. I'm not knocking. We do need businesses and things. I, I think all of us on this, this phone, on this call, could agree that we need to have 
in quote, our own businesses and things like that to be able to employ our people. I leave with this quote. I was looking at a video of uh, the late Dr. Amos Wilson. This was last year sometime. And he made a statement. He said, we must, as black people, realize that white people don't want to see us independent. Because when we talk about businesses for us or businesses in our neighborhoods and things like that, you talk, <clears throat> you're talking about a level of independence that, that they just can't stand. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But I just remember Dr. Amos Wilson saying we must understand that as we do the things that we need to do, that white people do not want to see us independent. Henceforth, we know uh, what they would try to do and what they can do. But, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do what we need to do. I hope I made sense. Thank you for taking my call. I'll mute myself. I know. I would just uh, submit before we get Mr. Steele the uh, movie, all of the things that you pointed out about it, it being more about Rebecca Sclude and uh, where the focus was, how it depicted uh, Henrietta Lacks' family. All of that is pretty uh, in line with the presentation in the text by Rebecca Sclude, which the film is named after based on. It's it's very accurate to, to what we read back in 2014. Uh, Mr. Steele? Yes, um, uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, this is Ken Steele, and I'm in uh, Southern California. Uh, currently, I believe I'm in Pomona. And uh, I just wanted to say that um, being in this uh, part of uh, the area of the world, known as the United States, I, I definitely uh, have been hearing uh, a number of different retrospectives um, regarding the uh, Rodney King uh, or the uh, the riots or the um, actions that took place surrounding the acquittal of the uh, police or the law enforcement officers that um, beat Rodney King. And one thing that I've noticed about them is that um, there's no real tidy conclusions to any of these retrospectives. It doesn't say, oh, and the uh, and this happened and, uh, you know, these problems were resolved. And that's because the problems have gone largely unresolved. And people who are creating these uh, retrospectives, uh, they're uh, fully aware of this. I suspect that these retrospectives are not being made or financed or funded to provide any sort of learning or provide any sort of lessons. This is really just um, the entertainment of the week. Um, I've also noticed that uh, the, um, I guess the running um, nonstop coverage of the OJ Simpson uh, verdict that um, has been in full effect or has been very noticeable since I believe the um, documentaries came out last year. Um, they have also kind of um, supplemented uh, that um, bit of history um, in with the mentioning of these, uh, of these uh, uprisings or riots or what have you. And one thing that's really interesting that uh, a previous caller mentioned is that um, these riots uh, are being brought up, and uh, we are in a time where um, suspected racists are 
experiencing a number of out and out, uh, what I would call uh, violent riots um, that have been taking place um, around the country and uh, have been focused here on the west coast of the country. And none of these riots um, are being reported as such in the news. Uh, they may be called violent protests or um, clashes or brawls, but they don't use the word riot. And um, I think that this is deliberate. I think that this is uh, to um, disassociate the behavior of um, suspected racists with the behavior of um, the victims of racism. And I think that is just to kind of elevate or maybe de uh, elevate the um, suspected racist and denigrate the, um, the victims of racism. And uh, honestly, I think that we need to um, be very, very mindful of the um, increased uh, street side hostility that's taking place. Um, I suspect that one of these uprisings or one of these riots that these uh, suspected racists um, have been staging um, across the country is going to be centered on uh, areas where um, victims of racism are heavily populated. Uh, and I think that, um, oh, is that mine? Is that me? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just hearing uh, just a, um, a lot of static. Um, yeah, I, I'm just saying that, uh, yeah, these people who are um, having these riots, I suspect that they're going to start to uh, um, have these uprisings or these riots. Um, they're going to force um, non-white people to start participating in the violence. So, um, you know, just be advised and be very mindful of what it is that these people have in store, because um, just just by the way that they're um, uh, functioning, um, it it seems to be a cycle. The Detroit riots were 50 years ago, mind you, and the LA riots were 25 years ago. So, if if there is any cycle going on or any pattern occurring, we are due for something um, cataclysmic. I'll mute my line. Right on. Uh, the folks who dialed in, uh, waiting till the last minute, we have uh, nine minutes left in the broadcast. We'll see if we can nab uh, both callers. The person 6900, uh, did you have commentary? 6900? Yes, uh, greetings, uh, Gus, and to the rest of the callers. My apologies for just uh, being able to raise my hand here. Just came out of the hospital. Um, just real quickly, in reference to Henrietta Lacks, um, close family member suffering from stage four cancer, um, just came out of the hospital with her all day today. Um, two months ago, they did a surgery that lasted 23 hours and removed probably 30% of the internal areas um, in her body because uh, they said it was going to help with the cancer. Here we are two months later, and they're telling us at this point she has to make arrangements. Um, we just heard that yesterday. So... Um, I tried to help the family and trying to have them make sure we ask a lot of questions before allowing them. She's over 65. Um, I told them not to allow them to do that type of surgery. 
it's too invasive for her old age. They allowed it, and now here we are two months later. Um, so I just ask all the callers, uh, the listeners, um, if you're involved, and I know a lot of our family members are not as um, where, where they're supposed to be, hopefully a little more informed. Um, I should have pushed a little bit more, but unfortunately I didn't. Um, but like I said, I'll, I'll mute my line. Just wanted to kind of make a mention as we were talking about the Henrietta Lack story, um, just to be a little bit more patient and try and push as much as we can, because unfortunately more victims are being hurt. And these Henrietta Lack stories, I feel, are ongoing. Uh, thanks. I'll mute my line. Hmm. Sorry to hear that. Um man uh thoughts prayers to the family and as, exactly as you stated i think we've had guests on the program before who said you know the when a race soldier goes out and shoots a black person or they choke a black person or whatever it is that maybe that might get a lot of attention sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't race soldiers in a lab coat with a, steth- a stethoscope and the ability to write a prescription it's all you you know, we got to do this surgery or we got to do this amputation or whatever it is. That sort of thing happens every day that doesn't end up on the front page of a newspaper or a big story or what have you. And I mean, they get to totally ravage black people on a constant basis. I think Thomas in New York has reminded us, reminded us of that often. Uh, the caller last four digits, nine, zero, nine, zero. Did you have commentary? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, my name is Nick. I'm calling from Los Angeles, and I don't know if you're still having us classify ourselves, but I'm non-white. <laughs> um, I wanted to bring up some um, a serious a serious issue in regards to us calling things what they are. And um, to do this, we have to study these words intensely. And what I've done is I, I've um, studied etymology. And it kind of gets you to the origin or the root of these words. Um, I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, For example, the word queen means prostitute. Uh, The word boy means servant. It's not even gender specific. The word girl means young animal. That's not gender specific. Uh, Black means pale. Um, It just goes on and on and on and on. The word nice, it means, you know, ignorant, foolish, and stupid. Um, human is not even a noun. It's an adjective. You know, so you can't even you can't be a human. You could be a human something, which that thing is the noun. And that's what we need to do this research for on so that we can figure these things out. Because this it's not that we're not communicating, we're just miscommunicating. You know, sort of like dyslexia. We're not calling things what they are and it's calling us causing us confusion from within. Another issue or topic I wanted to bring up um, is I'm not really sure if it's white supremacy because I've done research and it's sort of in the same realm of what Dr. Welsing or scientist Welsing came up with. And it's a very big difference between us and them. And what I'm talking about is this RH factor which is basically where they're showing that these people have monkey DNA or monkey content in their blood from this Reese's monkey. And the difference between an animal, I mean, it's a very big difference between people and animals. There are no human people and there are no people humans. These are like antonyms of each other. 
And I think that's a very big difference, man, because what I learned in elementary is that animals have fur and people have hair. And when I look at the carbon-rich ones of us, we have hair, and I see everybody else has fur. And for some reason, I just can't bring myself to think that there's a such thing as a white person or white people because that, that doesn't go together to me. Um, another issue is this thing between, like, about slaves. My research has, um, has sent me, uh, I found out that slaves, the ones that came over on the boats were, were like British convicts and, and that type of stuff. Um, what I see as being a prisoners of war. Um, that's something else that we could dig into. Um, it's a lot, bro. It's, it's so much, man. And um, if I may give out my website, because I actually put some of this content on my website. If I could give it out, is that okay with you? Uh, what's your site? Scienceitup.com. Everything's spelled normal. And the thing is, because I don't have access to my desktop, you have to register because I really didn't want this content to be for everybody. I wanted it to just be for the carbon-rich people. So when you go there, you know, the words that I put on there are not public. You have, you have to put in the email, create a password, and you have, con you know, access to the words. And that's just a start. There's also, a, you also have access to an area where it says um, public safety is not obligated to protect. You could Google Warren versus District of Columbia where it specifically says that the police are not obligated to protect people. They're just not. The only people that they're obligated to protect are the people that hire them, and this is the, the agencies that, that employ them. Unless you're paying the police out of your pocket, they're not obligated to do anything for you. This is why some businesses hire security guards. You know, it's, it's, it gets very interesting, and these are Supreme Court case rulings. You know, it, it, it gets interesting. Um, it's... it's it's so much, brother. It's so much. I want everybody to do this. Go to um, YouTube. Put in St. Mary's of the Good Wind. St. Mary's of the Good Wind. It's like a 30-second video. Listen very carefully to what the commentator says. And then I want everybody to go back to 20 seconds. And I want you to look at the people that they call the slaves that's in the background of this portrait. Right on. We'll check out you know, your uh, content. We pretty much did our three hours. Uh, we'll check out the video. Okay, I'm have you. running out of time. Much obliged me, for you. Um, Hang on one second. Uh, much mm -hmm. obliged for your commentary, sir. Thank you. Uh, I would, I generally uh, encourage any non-white person, if you are putting out information constructive, even if it's not constructive, if you're trying to share something with another non-white person, you should just assume that the whole world is going to see uh, what it is that you right. are writing. Uh, and if you're not willing to have the whole world share it, see it, then you shouldn't share it. That's generally the advice that I take because the evidence, I'm just going by logic, the evidence has shown that the individuals classified as white Generally speaking, non-white people have had a very difficult time uh, keeping secrets from them. And I think there's a long record of that. They have a lot of means uh, of extracting information uh, from non-white people. Just something to keep in mind because it seems a lot of non-white people have got in trouble uh, thinking that they were concealing information. And it turns out they were not. 
That said, uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Dr. Welsing uh, was mentioned. Uh, Sabrina Johnson, she was one of her students, longtime students, uh, really close confidant. Uh, she traveled with Dr. Welsing. She's been on the program uh, before. She organized the memorial for Dr. Welsing uh, last month on Dr. Welsing's birthday. She'll be with us tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll review what happened at the memorial. Uh, Dr. Welsing's uh, prediction that Trump would be in the White House uh, and her thoughts on it now that it has uh, come true. Her efforts, she's trying to get some programs together to continue uh, to honor Dr. Welsing's uh, work her teachings, uh, seeing what we can do to continue that legacy. She, in fact, has been continuing the Welsing Institute. Uh, they've been running uh, ever since Dr. Welsing's passing uh, at the beginning of last year. Uh, they'll be meeting next month, uh, the second Thursday uh, of the month, so that's in May, and then they'll be meeting one more time before the summer break in June. Uh, so if folks are in the D.C. area, uh, if you might be traveling through, you can stop in. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, it's on the campus of uh, Howard University, Washington, D.C., same location, same time. Dr. Welsing uh, held everything at the Blackburn Center, Howard University. I think some of our listeners have attended, and I think uh, poet Danny Queen should be there as well. Uh, he has uh, archived audio, video of her uh, lectures from the Welsing Institute for decades. Uh, he can go back and, and hook you up and get you uh, information if you're looking for something. Uh, but that's it. Sabrina Johnson, she'll be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you have questions, you can't find something in the archives, other information, you have a guest suggestion, drop us an email, untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. A listener, they emailed me a picture they saw uh, at an airport restroom. Uh, it said uh, it was a sticker of some sort on the wall. It, it said, hit some dingers, and it was D. N G E R S. And he asked if, if I thought it was uh, racial, if you remove the D looks a lot like niggers. Don't know. Uh, I do know that they use the term dingers in baseball. Uh, to, uh, it means someone hitting a home run. Uh, but I've stated consistently, I don't give white people the benefit of the doubt for anything, anything that even looks that close to, niggers i just suspect that and i'm even if that's not what was intended i suspect a sizable number of white people that is what they would read anything that's suggesting violence towards black people yes on board let's get to it can we find a black person to hit right now that's what i'm submitting is the system of white supremacy anywho uh remain codified i know it's getting warm folks want to go out have fun uh by all means have fun. It's warm. I intend on getting out and getting some sunshine myself. That does not mean that you can lax in your codification. War is being waged against black people every day worldwide. Because of that, sobriety would be best. Uh, and that is just, again, based on evidence. I haven't seen any evidence that us being intoxicated, alcohol, cigarettes, cannabis, any other narcotics that whites come up with. I just haven't seen any evidence that that is helping us to solve this problem, uh, helping us to come up with concepts, counter-racist strategies that are going to permanently neutralize whites. Haven't seen that to this point. And in fact, I've seen a lot of evidence that us being under the influence has made it easier for racists to dominate and terrorize us. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient 
with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Man. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.